since we've recorded an episode, but it hasn't been that long since I've seen you last. That's true. We did not get to do an episode together when we were in Miami. Because we were just having too much fun. I think we are having too much fun and also we're sitting in too much traffic. Like we spent so much time, and maybe I was more conscious of it because I was the one driving, but we Odd. spent so much time stuck in traffic in Miami. It was, it was no joke. It was no joke. But also, you know, we were going to the big cheese. Yeah. We were enjoying our time there. And sometimes, you know, two good buddies who work in tennis just don't really feel like signing on to talk about tennis when they're done. No, especially when it was like midweek and who knew it was going to happen and all sorts of stuff, you know. Exactly. The whole, yeah, whatever was But we got on. there in we the end. We got there in it's the okay. end. It was all fine. And we got there with the first, I guess, we'll start off with this. Just sort of, we last did a show to the Australian Open. We did, we actually did a, we also did a this year on tour show because we did our spectacular 10 greatest women in tennis history thing since then. Um, but that was not really about much going on in 2019. So just to check back up with the 2019 season at this sort of 30% way through mark of it now. After Charleston, we're recording this during the Houston, Marrakesh, Bogota, Lugano week. Um, I, I guess the obvious sort of lead, I think, Courtney, is this whole statistic that's getting bounced around more and more about how there have been, I guess, this week in Lugano and Bogota, there will be the 16th and 17th different champions. 17th and 18th. 17th and 18th, excuse me. Uh, yeah, on, we're at 16 now. Right, on the WTA Tour. I guess Keys was number 16. Um, and then Or on, Garby, depends on which way, which way you're counting. There you go. Um, and then uh, on the men's side, there's only been one repeat champion, and it didn't come until Miami, which was Federer. And if it's like Federer, does it even count? So I guess like what we talked about the whole parity versus dominance thing a lot on this show in many years past. We don't have to totally dive into, I don't think, the values of it. But I guess, is there something happening here? Is 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 everybody really good? Is nobody very good? Like, is, what what, what is, a, is something, is it completely separate things happening on both tours? Is it similar things happening on both tours? What's what's causing this, this huge spread of winners? And is it less remarkable than it might seem like from the statistical anomaly side? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, obviously, it's a statistical anomaly in terms of and, and it's a rare thing. I mean, this is unprecedented, particularly on I mean, I know for sure on the women's side, I presume it's also unprecedented on the men's side. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Um, up until Roger yeah, I think it uh, was. won Miami. Yeah, I think it was historic on both ends. So obviously, it's a big it's it's something that you kind of delve into and you're like, okay, what exactly is going on? Um, it's weird though, because as I've been doing it and, and obviously it's been a, a, because it's been such a discussion point uh, amongst the media, it's something that I've been looking at and spending a little bit of my week kind of like trying to delve in to look at. And the, there's a couple of things that stand out to me and, I, and I'll speak specifically for the women's tour first and then kind of tie it into the men's tour um, only because my data points are specific to the women's tour at the moment. Mm-hmm. But um you know, first of all, it, it, when you go through the 16 champions that we've had so far this year, I mean, as close as you get to a, a quote unquote random champion or somebody that nobody really saw coming is I'm thinking Wang Yafan in Acapulco. 
Yeah, her, um, her and Drescu would be the other one who would come to mind for me in terms of yeah, out okay. of nowhere. Yeah, okay. And I, I just, I just, just completely disagree with. I understand because of I understand I understand because of the the size of the event and obviously it's a premier mandatory. But you know there was a reason why Bianca Andrescu did pre tournament press in Indian Wells. You know, I mean, like her, the numbers that she had been putting up prior to that, making the final in Acapulco, the players that she had beaten already, you know, kind of gave you gave you an idea of, OK, if you are if you do have your, your finger on the pulse of the women's tour, is it a, a completely remarkable run? Absolutely. Is it compl- is, is it as stunning as, for example, Elena Vesnina winning a couple of years ago or even a Flavia Panetta uh, a few years ago? I would argue that Andrescu wasn't as surprising as those personally. Um so, so there's that. Um, I think also, again, like, I mean, if I were to read through like the title winners, and this is, I think, in a lot of ways, because the table has been set on the WTA tour, the WTA has been dealing with this level, or this growing level of parody for for years now, you know, really, right? Since, since uh, Serena kind of dro- dropped off tour, Maria dropped off tour, Azarenka, all those players, and, and all the retirements that we kind of had. Um, it this has been kind of moving in this trend. So if I list off the winners, Pliskova, Brisbane, Sabalenka, uh, Gerges, Kvitova, Kennan, Osaka, Bertens, Yastremska, uh, Mertens, Bencic, Van Oitvank, uh, Wang Yafan, Andrescu, Barty, Keys, and Muguruza. Where in that group are you looking at somebody where you're like, nah, I don't know, that shows a weakness in the tour? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I don't, I don't, those are all established. And no, I'm not saying you. I'm saying one. Well, I, I'm, um, I'm just saying I'm just saying to this as this one or as a person talking to one as well. I, I do think that there is something to be said. Like a lot of the the more you know, quote unquote, less known names you said were all winning smaller tournaments. You know, Wong was winning Acapulco, which is international. Van Oitvank was winning uh, Budapest, which was international. Mer- uh, yeah, Mertens and Mer- won a bunch of titles last year, but all in on the international level. Right, and so like there just hasn't been. My sort of main reason for why this is happening on both tours, I think, is that the top players haven't been playing a ton. Like, Federer won, I guess it was the one who repeated, he won Dubai and then he won Miami. But, like, Djokovic didn't play anything between Melbourne and Indian Wells. He's the number one on the men's side and pretty was considered a pretty dominant number one, uh, you know, after the Australian Open, for sure. Uh, and kind of stumbled at both Indian Wells and Miami all sorts of off-court stuff going on with him, which we can maybe discuss later. Uh, and I guess that's just, it's a testament to them not playing much. Naomi Osaka, number one on the women's side, only played one tournament between Australia and anyone else herself. She played Dubai, right? So it's not like there were tons of opportunities for these a lot of the top players to rack up these titles. And also, it's just a thing, like, would it significantly change the landscape of the tour if, let's say... Laszlo Jere on the men's side had backed up his Rio de Janeiro title by winning Sao Paulo. Like, would that have, you know, and that would have been a, a repeat titleist, but would that have really changed the temperature of the tour in a meaningful way? I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, that's a point. So, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and if Van yeah, Oyvank had won Lugano t- this week, I mean, like, because she was the last one to sort of right. win in contention to end the streak this week. If she'd won Lugano, I don't know if that says. It or, says she's having a nice Benchichad, year, but it doesn't say anything. Or if Benchichad. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I guess, I mean, I think that that's a good point in terms of, you know, what exactly are we arguing against? Or or what are we argue? or what are people arguing is not happening? Do you know what I mean? Like, because you're right. I mean, unless somebody has at this point won three titles um, and has done it at all the big tournaments or something like that. I mean, whether it's two or one or 
you know, 16 different titleists. And going back, if you look back, at, at least on the WTA side, you look at the finals. I mean, you know, especially for the first two months, they were incredibly tight. I mean, these things could have really flipped in different ways. You you look at it specifically like a Kvitova, um, who leads the WTA tour in, in the number of finals, having made three but losing two of them, which is a very rare Kvitova stat in and of itself, Mm -hmm. given how good she is at at finals. Like, it's it's just, there are moments of it that seem like anomalies when you look at it, like, from a, like, oh, we have 16 different ones. But then, I don't know, when I started diving into it, I was like, you know, these matches really could have flipped the other way really quickly. And then you could have been looking at a completely different Mm -hmm. set of champions. You know, Kvitova very easily could have won the Australian Open. Barty could have won Sydney. Yeah. Barty could have won Sydney. Um, Kvitova, it was a three-setter against Bencic in, in Dubai. You know, Sabalenka beats Bencic in the quarterfinals there, having, you know, with, with, with her multiple match points. Who knows what happens there? Um, you know, Halep led Mertens in Doha. So I, so there's all these things happening. But the, the stat that um, I've, I've kind of stum- not stumbled upon but have been tracking for about, about five weeks now that really stands out to me on the women's tour is just how young the champions are. Mm-hmm. And I know that anecdotally we knew that because obviously it seemed like every week we were writing about like some young player having a breakthrough um, and a career result. But um, just, you know, having we crunched the numbers at the tour and this is like the lowest average age of of champions in about 10 years Hmm. or about uh, 2008. And it's the same 23.2 in in then and, and same this year. And the weird thing is on top of that is that not just that it's skewing that young, but there are only four players who are aged over 25 who have won titles on the WTA tour this year. Hmm. That's pretty weird. Like 25. I mean, that's a low, low cutoff to say only four players. Right. Which were Kvitova, uh, Burton's, uh, Kerber, or no, uh, Kvitova, Burton's, Kerber, and uh, Gerges. No, I threw a different player in there. Anyways. Kvitova, Burton's, not, Gerges. Not Kerber. Oh, not Kerber. Uh, um, Muguruza? Oh, okay. No, Muguruza is still 25. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. So those are the four players. Outside of that, I mean, you know, it's it's like two 18-year-olds have won titles, mm-hmm. right? Like 20-year-olds. So that, I think, is like more the statistical anomaly because that goes way against kind of this trend that we've been seeing on the tour, on the both the men's and the women's tour. But of just like champions being older and like, you know, all the stories of like, oh, you can play till you're 35 now and you can win and all that. Just right now through the first quarter of the season, it's like straight up kids. Yeah. Every week. <laughs> no, and, and Which has been which has been fun, but it, it, it's definitely weird. I did a podcast uh, with the Cracked Rackets folks a couple days ago and we were talking about sort of this arrival. It was mostly men's focus talking about this arrival of the young guys. And I was saying sort of, you know, it's interesting with people getting as excited as they are about Felix breaking through or Dennis breaking through or whatever. And those are legitimately significant statistical breakthroughs at how young they are. But like when you compare it to what the women's side is doing, it doesn't feel all that big. When you compare it to Naomi Osaka being number one in the world at 21 and having won the last two Grand Slams, when you compare it to 18-year-old Andrescu winning, you know, the fifth slam essentially in Indian Wells, that feels like much more significant things are happening with younger people. And you mentioned, you know, Yastrzemska, I guess, is the other 18-year-old. Is that right? Who's right? Won and, a title. and Kennan. Yeah, and Kennan's doing big things. And, Kennan's and Hobart. young, 20. Right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's there's there's a lot going on there, and and yeah, I guess the expectation obviously is that it, or I don't know, the bars, I guess, maybe lower on the women's tour. Even, I mean, if you talk about a Benchich, right? Mm-hmm. Like the first player of that great generation, 97, to crack into the top 10 back when she was 18 years old a few years ago, now having like a resurgent year, 
you know, coming during a time where when she was away, when she, you know, after being the standard holder, like, right, like Ostapenko wins Roland Garros, Kasatkina, like, has a bit of her run breaking into the top 10, and then obviously Osaka, all generation 97 kids. Um, there, There is a lot of that. And so it's nice to see that discussion on the men's tour, you know, like, I mean, I think it's great. Like, and mm-hmm. I really love, like, the young next-gen guys just because I think they have, like, great you know, different games that I like watching and very different personalities and all that. Um, so it's nice to see like the guys kind of get that, um, that kind of shot in the arm and that infusion. Um, but, you know, when those players are making those runs, whether it's all the way back to the start of the year with, with Stefanos, you know, at the Australian Open mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, uh, Nick in Acapulco, not that he's like a teenager or anything. And then you have like Felix and Dennis, um, TFO, like all those guys. Um, that's going to happen and you get excited because they are pulling off the big wins, right? Yeah. I mean, they are beating the guys that everybody expects to already have like, you know, two or three titles at this point. So it doesn't work to like kind of like celebrate one and bitch and moan about the other, right? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's true. Oh, yay. Like all these great new stars. Oh, but oh, no domination. It's like, it doesn't work that way. I think that, that's just math. <laughs> I think that the on the women's side, I think the breakthrough people like Osaka dating back to, I guess, last year's US Open, or even last year's Indian Wells, maybe, Osaka and Andrescu in particular have done more direct beating of the top sort of gatekeepers than a fair number of the the guys. I feel like some of the guys, especially in Miami with Chapo and Felix, were kind of coming through a bit of open draws. They weren't beating the really sort of establishment, because the top guys aren't there. I mean, Novak lost third round at both tournaments, I think, and uh, Rafa didn't play Miami, and, and Andy is doing whatever Andy's doing these days. And, you know, I feel like they're, they're taking advantage of more open space where it feels like the women are really knocking down the walls. Like what you saw Andrescu do to Muguruza and Indy Wells is still like the most staggering <laughs> match of the year to me. Like that she yeah. was able to just absolutely, and Garby wasn't even playing that bad and just got right. like completely routed by this kid. And it was, it was pretty wild. So Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I think also on the men's tour, this is what I argue is kind of a little bit of the flip that's happening on the WTA tour, but give me a second to make that argument. But I think that on the men's tour, you know, you go back, right, like six, seven, eight years, and who did the kids, which are the Grigors and Kays and Milos, that generation, um, who did they have to go through? And they had to go through a far larger swath Mm-hmm. of, I would argue, quality, right? Like, you had to go through the Vavrinkas, the Burdicks, the 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 Del Potros, the Songas. Ferrer. You know, Ferrer. Oh, Ferrer. <laughs> just like the... <laughs> Ferrer still stopping Zverev, so, you know. <laughs> He's still stopping. <laughs> uh, maybe my favorite match of the year. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like you know, you had, you had way more stoppers and gatekeepers mm-hmm. on the ATP tour that that, that lost generation that everybody kind of calls that group. Um, had to go through and 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 I don't think that this group of like the feel of Felix and Chapo and Sitsipas are any better necessarily mm. than than Nishikori Dimitrov Raonic were at their age. I think that Felix is better. Felix is the one who Fe- feels Fe- like the Felix is one different. To me. Fair enough. Yeah, Felix is different because he's like a genuine teenager. Yeah, but like but like you know like the t- the young twenty year old guys. Like, you know, I don't think that they are necessarily better than that crew was around their age. But I think that they're taking advantage of of the opportunities that now exist when you have, like, all these, you know, stalwarts basically kind of 
ceding that space and just providing more opportunities, yeah. right? Um, no, and as that space the, opens up, it'll yeah, open up for everybody. I mean, I think that I, right. I did a poll on Twitter of of who, because it felt like a very, you know, off the moment thing to do, of who will be the next first Canadian to win a Grand Slam singles title. And I put, you know, the two young guys, Shapovalov and Felix in there, and I put Andrescu in there, and I put Ronich in there. And I, you know, would be almost tempted to pick Ronich out of that group just because he's still there. I mean, he's relatively healthy at the moment, I feel like, and, and that can change, obviously, but he's you know, still the highest ranked of any of them, I think. And as this, you know, as this guard, which was so resolute when he was in, you know, being more talked about is sort of fading, it's entirely possible that the, you know, breakthrough next champion could be someone of that older generation, whether it's who's just sort of there hanging around getting it um, and has a bit more under the radar than the, the very on radar way the next geners are being treated. Um, so it could be someone like a Ronich. It could be someone like a, Again, if they all these caveats with them, but like a Nisha Corey or even like something wilder, like a Batista Agut or something like that, if a draw falls apart. Like there's still, I think we're just seeing the playing field, and this goes back to the whole different title winners thing. The playing wheel just field is just getting super level and like it's sort of a everybody on the floor dancing situation. And, you know, there's plausible cases to be made for way more people than there were before. Yeah. I mean, we've always talked about it on the WTA, right? Like on any given day. Mm hmm. Like that matchups matter. And at the end of the day, it, it's not that anybody is necessarily a better player than anybody else, you know, especially when you narrow it down to like the top 40 in particular. It's just that, you know, some players are able to play more consistently at a top level. That's why they're ranked higher. But any given day, it's kind of a coin flip. And and I, for me, because that's kind of the air that I breathe, um, given where I work, you know, it, it's, it's just become how it is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like super fascinating to me to kind of like see it start to um to kind of happen on the men's tour you mm -hmm. know because obviously it you know those 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 four guys and if you expand it out you know the kind of eight or nine guys that pretty much ruled the top 10 that were constantly the field in london let's say um you know it was just so hard for everybody to break through so you know i, I think that it's good it'll be interesting it'll be interesting on the clay season just because like you know uh, does that mean that like Rafa just runs away with it? Yeah. Like because like literally like that you know the gap, like, but his gap against everybody else is is even further, you know, or 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 a Novak obviously in that discussion as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean I I think it's been a really exciting first you know three or four months. I it's been fun just to like not know what the hell was going to happen any given week. Yeah, speaking of things that were not expected. Uh, I think the biggest sort of news item in terms of tennis, not besides the Kermode stuff, which we can get to if you want, but the sort of biggest thing to happen to a top player besides that was Naomi Osaka splitting with Sasha Bayan after winning the Australian Open. And we were both, I think, Courtney, I can speak for you as well, we were both pretty surprised when the, that news came out. Um, at, 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 at that instant, maybe in retrospect, you could sort of read a little bit more tea leaves and put it in some context. But I guess what what does that decision say about about Naomi looking back at it and the fact that she's sort of struggled uh, since Sasha? Is that something to be, you know, taking note of now? Because she had such an incredibly sharp rise with him going from 70, I think, at the start of the 2018 season to number one uh, shortly into the 2019 season. And then they're done. So on paper, that was what made it so shocking, the split. But does it make sense to you now from what you've heard? Or 
Is it still something that's a head scratcher or a concern or how do you, how do you sort of postmortem that now with a bit of hindsight? Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not concerned at all. Um, And I think that the biggest, you know, the biggest reason why I say that is because not everything is about wins and losses and, and not everything is about like, you know, everybody's like freaking out about, Oh, can Naomi do what she did before? And, you know, and on all this sort of stuff. And, and honestly, if, if you spend the time and you just talk to her, it becomes really clear that that's just not where her head is at. Um, you know, and, and she goes into the clay season in a very, very interesting space, right? Because, you know, obviously all these these sponsorship deals, she's number one. Um, you know, outside of that loss to Mladenovic in Dubai, which one could argue there were extenuating circumstances surrounding it. Just the first tournament, she was number one. Mm-hmm. And she was kind of surprised and genuinely taken aback by the by the media attention about the split with Sasha. But her two losses, you know, in Indian Wells and Miami are not bad losses, especially in the context of this season. Um, you know, losing to Bencic, you know, in Indian Wells, like who wasn't losing to Belinda Bencic at, the, <laughs> at that time? And then losing to Shea Suwei, oh. who clearly could have knocked her out back at the Australian Open, which I, I know you're still bitter about, Ben. But, I, I'm not bitter about um, that. No, I'm not bitter about the, the Australian Open. I'm bitter yes, about I know. 4-0 in the third against Contavite, to be very clear. Ah, fair enough. Yeah. That's, that's Ben. Ben had a whole. He had a whole. I was going to do a story on her that day, and, and it's yeah. been shelved for the time being. And I, I just, I, I, I'm still. My pity party is still, you know, waiting for the last guest to leave. Yeah, clearly. Even I was the um, only but one. Yeah. Invited. So, so you know, in a year of of, as we you know spent twenty minutes saying, you know, of of remarkable parody, um, where we just spent all this time saying anybody can beat anybody, blah 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 blah. Like, why, like, has Naomi Osaka really been struggling as much as people, like, say that she has? That's my first point. Secondly, it's tough for her, I think, going into the clay season because she has yet to prove to herself, I think, let alone anyone else, that she can play on the surface and that she enjoys the surface and can embrace the surface the way that a player that used to, she used to be compared to quite a bit, Madison Keys, has kind of done over time. Mm. And that might take some time. And so it's stru- I, I'm worried a little bit only because she's going to go into this clay season with all this spotlight, with all this attention, with all this expectation, and all of that expectation, I believe, will be misplaced. That people will just completely and willingly and ignorantly ignore just running what her clay stats are <laughs> And understanding that she has yet to to prove that she can succeed on the surface. And same on the grass as well. And that might take time. It doesn't that's not to say that she won't be able to do it in her career. I do believe that she will be able to do it in her career. Um, she's one of those players with just the talent. It would surprise me if she didn't finish her her career with a, a career grand slam. But that's what uh, what concerns me a little bit more is just kind of the expectation of what she's supposed to do on the clay season. But when we talk about her split with Sasha, you know, I spoke to her in Dubai and, and it wasn't about forehands and backhands and it wasn't about, oh, my gosh, I can I think I can win without him. It, it wasn't any of those things. And and I think that that just it just was a, you know, kind of a, a mental health decision, just that she just felt more comfortable going, you know, a different direction that that maybe somewhere along the way their relationship had, had kind of, you know, gotten to the point not through any fault of either. I genuinely believe that or not through any ill will or or nefarious dealings or any of that. Mm-hmm. Just that somewhere, you know, someone stepped on the land landmine one way or the other. 
Um, and and she felt that 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 there's needed there need to be a change. And whether or not that works, whether Jermaine works out as the best coaching option, whether she goes winless for the next six to eight months, <laughs> none of that, I think, honestly, would change my opinion as to whether or not like the decision to let to split with Sasha was a good or bad one, mm. you know, and, and that's more of just a personal like I just want to make sure that kid's happy more than anything else and and so long as she is the winds and the winds will come and she's 21 years old yeah no like, i, I yeah. you know what i mean like she's got nine years minimum which means nine times four 36 more slams like i'm not freaking out at all yeah no it's right and that's the sort of frustrating thing about the surface switches in tennis is that like people who were you know in Miami, like she was playing, I think pretty good, and just lost to Shea Sue, yeah. who's a great player. Um, and now has a tougher, sort of more uphill climb to get her footing back or get a foothold back on two surfaces she hasn't really done much on in clay and grass. And I feel the same way even about players who are doing great, like Ash Barty. I was reading yeah, articles in the in the Australian press, you know, from various past players um, down there saying like, "Oh, you know, Ash has got a game tailor made for clay. Like she should be great on it." It's like. With all due respect to Ash Barty, her clay stats are not good. They're pretty mediocre compared to the rest of her career. And she, even if she comes in with a head of steam from Miami, it'll be so easy for people to write like, oh, wow, she's really, you know, struggled since this biggest career title and she's, you know, flopping on clay or whatever. And and that's just a that's a sort of systemic thing in tennis, which used to be way worse, I think, really, year, decades ago. Yeah, true. When the surfaces were more drastically different, um, and we sort of, but people also back then understood the narrative of, of there were real surface specialists back then, and that was sort of people were afforded. You know, when when Pete Sampras lost routinely early at the French Open, or when Andy Roddick lost erotic. early, erotic, yeah, yeah, erotic, or even. Even the Williamses in the early days, you know, when they would lose, when Serena had her 10 years without a French Open title, you know, it was not like it was going to spell disaster for her grass court season. And I think people should sort of, you know, accept that yeah. too. And, and there are players who can change their narrative, but it does take time. Like Madison Keys being the first clay court titleist of the year. I mean, it's it's, <laughs> it's been a funny sort of journey for her. Um, we certainly were in plenty of, you know, Madison Keys post-French <laughs> Open loss press conferences over the years where she was couldn't hardly hold back her excitement um you know at, at clay being over and now she suddenly has like a really credible clay court resume where she made a french open semi and won charleston and she could like legitimately be a you know longer shortlist contender in paris this year um and whether she wants to i'm sure she would hate hearing that but given her sort of self-deprecation I mean, she was a semi-finalist last year exactly i mean like, like we're coming out of nowhere no, like she's and she made a rome final before that too like there's yes. there's a significant body of work now with madison keys on clay um even i want to say quite that compute. actually all, like she's made more clay well no she's made three clay finals she's made two hardcore i'm, I'm wondering off the top no she made finals in charleston she... yeah rome and two charleston finals in a rome two charleston finals she, I'm just trying to think if she's actually made more finals on clay than she has on any other surface, which is possible. Because uh, she's won two titles on grass. She won Stanford, made the final in Montreal one year. Maybe. I mean, oh, it's close. and U.S. Open. It's, U.S. Open it's, is three. It's pretty, so, it's pretty level, though. I mean, like, for yeah. someone who you think of Madison being, like, people think of her, I think, as, like, a fast court specialist when they think about her game. Like, the numbers don't bear that way out at all. So, anyway, anyway that also say, like, you can evolve and grow and obviously... Sherpo was a very famous case of this, of someone who was pretty, you know, 
laughable on Clay early in her career who totally figured it out. And now it's like Pliskova. Her, her thing. Yeah, Pliskova's in the key, Keys boat totally too. Yeah. That Pliskova. No, power wins yeah. on Clay. I mean, it, it can. Yeah. Um, you know, it, more has to go right, obviously, I think, for, for power to win on Clay to do that seven consecutive matches um, and out hit people and the, deal with the weather and all that sort of stuff. It, there's more margin if you're like a Simona Halep or an Alina Svitolina um, to win matches. There's just more freedom and more different ways that you can win matches. But yeah, I mean, but that's the thing, right? I mean, Ash, I asked her about um, Clay season in, after she won Miami. And a year ago, Ash literally said, like, the best thing about clay season is that with every week, the grass season gets closer. Mm -hmm. Like, that's how much she hated it. And this year, she was like, look, I know I'm playing good tennis. And the thing is, it's not that I'm bad on clay. It's just that I just, I've never played on it. Like, I didn't grow up on it. So it's just a matter of learning how to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's just going to take time. And we know that, that Ash has the weapons to be able to do well there. I mean, she nearly beat Serena. Uh, last year, uh, not that you know, it was a weird was match. Very but early yeah. in Serena's, it was a weird match, but the opportunities were there. Mm -hmm. Um, so so yeah, and and you also have those other floaters like a Sabalenka, you know, who you're kind of like you're in that category of like you can hit through the court if you just would feel comfortable moving on it, which we're not clear you do yet. Um, but uh, and then you have like those players like a Andrescu, a Benchic, um. You know, young players who who seem to really do like clay quite a bit yeah. um, and can succeed on it. So, you know, I mean, all that is to say, like in a season where obviously, again, like unprecedented parity, where the margins are so slim amongst all these players, once you switch surfaces, that just adds a whole nother like variable that can shift these matchups one way or the other. Right. Yeah. Like um, and, and, and some players might surge ahead and some players might drop it back a little bit. And it's important for not just obviously, you know, tennis journalists and tennis writers and tennis commentators and the commentariat to to kind of keep <laughs> keep their narratives in check accordingly and keep them informed. But also, look, I mean, if you guys are fans and you see this nonsense happening where everybody's like piling on Naomi Osaka for losing first round at Stuttgart, like, well, second round because she'll have a bye. Uh, you know, call people out because that's nonsense. Like yeah. that's gonna be a tough draw, almost whoever she gets. It's gonna be a tough draw, yeah. yeah. And 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 bless her for trying. Honestly, yeah. I mean, you know, she's a player who's like has a car sponsor that is not Porsche. It's not a noodle company either. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> uh, who's going? <laughs> Chill out, bro. <laughs> and um and then is 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 gonna play Stuttgart? You know, which is kind of like, generally like the clay quarters, like the ones who want to get points. ASAP, you know, kind of, but I respect her for starting her, her clay season early. It looks like she's been training really hard, but if she, she crashes out in the second round to Annette Contavite, mm -hmm. like if I read any postmortems, my Lord, I'm going to lose my crap. <laughs> well, I'm just going to be real mad. Let's all, let's all work in, in this April to keep Courtney's crap intact. Um, <laughs> speaking of, you mentioned Andrescu in there and we, and I feel like we just talk about her a little bit more dedicatedly because she has been the big revelation of this 2019 season on the women's side. I think she's kind of got, you know, like most improved and or newcomer locked up already for the voting. Uh, yeah. She's, you know, came on really strong first week of the year in, in Auckland, making the final there. And what was so impressive about that final run is the top players she beat. And these like incredibly different top players too. She yeah. beat Venus, she beat Wozniacki and she beat Shea Suwei. Like those, you, you cannot find like a, a more you know, different variety pack of players in a draw 
to make a name with yourself for yourself with. Um, so I was super impressed by that. And, was, you know, yeah. and, 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 and could have won the final against Gerges. Yeah, to be totally. Honest. So, you know, yeah, there was combinations of power, of grinders, of the variety of Shea Sue And she was getting stuck in three, three setters and she still found a way through it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, you know, obviously now looking back, it's like, oh, all the pieces were there in Auckland. Yeah. We should have known. But and, and, um, yeah, and then, it, she, she keeps, yeah. and then she kept it going, which is so impressive, too, that she is not somebody who seemed to have any real sort of hangover from it. She goes, you know, plays well uh, through then, goes to Indian Wells, plays, you know. Well, she wins the Newport Challenger. Right, wins the Newport Challenger. She wins the Acapulco. Yeah. And then, and then she kept um, it rolling yeah. into, into Indian Wells and kept backing up that tournament and that final was so impressive that was one of the more uh amazing matches of the year her beating kerber in this uh very dramatic hard-fought pretty high quality final with lots of momentum swings and everything like that and that she had the kind of maturity and poise to knock out kerber in a final because kerber is such a gamer and such a competitor and such a relentless person and then um to, to do that you know overcoming clearly some some foot issues or whatever it was she was having in, in late in that match and then backing it up and winning a few matches in Miami, beating Kerber again, uh, having a spirited, well, one-sided spirited. I mean, Jessica didn't really do much of the net. But um, to, to get to have clearly, you know, announced herself in a way that got under Kerber's skin, Kerber calling her, you know, biggest drama queen ever. And 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 then to have, you know, but to, to me, like, that's to, to rattle Angie like that is such an incredible arrival moment because Angie does not get shook. <laughs> by people but something about Andrescu and how she came out of nowhere to play this level of tennis and to not you know wait for you know her turn in any sort of way not that other players do that as much on the women's side but like that she's been so, so ready and so complete as a competitor and as a player this year I think it's been really really striking and it's it's very exciting to see what she can do the rest of this year yeah, I mean, she's been, she, you know, during Indian Wells and, and even Auckland, I just caught myself saying so often, you're not supposed to be able to do this at 18. Mm-hmm. Like whether it's the t- the style of game that she plays, which when she's playing well, you know, is a perfect blend of power and, and variety. Um, kind of there's a gamer-ness to her and how she, she can construct her points. She's She says she doesn't, she's not trying to hit a moon ball. She's trying to hit a big heavy ball. But a lot of times those balls, which are incredibly effective, you know, work out and pan out. She will troll you with the drop shot, um, you know, and there's kind of that stereotypically, at least on the, the women's side, this has always been a, a similar, a, a consistent trait among the Canadian women of kind of just this jockish quality in, in how hard they compete and how they strut and kind of believe that they 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 belong there, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of, of the ranking in front of their name. And so there's so much about what she was doing in Indian Wells. And, and then in, in what she continued on in Miami, she saved match point against Begu um, mm-hmm. to win the, her opening match. She was like completely gassed and, you know, still trying to fight through it and, and somehow got that win against Kerber again but um you know i just really feel like um she just is scrambling all of our brains not just her opponents but just even from us who are sitting in the cheap seats trying to understand what she's doing it it just doesn't make sense like because you're just not supposed to be able to do that at 18 years old having you know play currently playing in all the biggest stages that you will have played on like it's not like she's had the past experience to say oh yeah like yeah you know, I've never I've done this before because I got a wild card and played on center court in Arthur Ashe or something when I was 16 years old. That that's not her story, you know. So so yeah, so I can understand her, uh, you know, 
whether intentionally or unintentionally, like getting under people's skin or just like just the audacity of it all. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes with veterans, it's even as simple as that. Like kind of how dare you? How dare you come out and think that you that you can stand toe to toe with me? And then, oops, you were right. And now I'm mad. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? like, I mean, that's a common thing as well. So um, she's been an absolute breath of fresh air. And, and um, I'm thoroughly looking forward to, to seeing her get back on court. Yeah, she can do everything. She sort of reminds me of as anyone who's around me ever knows I play this video game tennis elbow a lot and occasionally we'll start off like a new character like a new career you know basically reboot the game but like obviously I've been playing this whole time and know you know how to play this video game better than your average rookie is supposed to and so results will come like way faster than they realistically would for a player on tour and she almost reminds me of that it's almost like whatever brain is in her on court has like so much more experience than would show up on paper and there's something and it's so much more complete, like the fact that she can adjust tactically and play all these different styles early on. And Felix has a little bit of that, too. Felix um, is also a super complete player with a super full arsenal of shots. So maybe there's just something very complete in the Canadian water suddenly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she's 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 pretty special. And, and, and it'll be interesting to see what she can do at Grand Slams, where she hasn't really uh, had much practice yet and hasn't had a lot of testing at that very different uh very different stakes there because we've seen with plenty of players it's a whole different whole different ball game translating sometimes yeah to the it, i mean it's great for her i mean like roland garros will be the first right like uh main draw that she'll be in and she'll be seated likely yeah. she made main draw of australia <laughs> crazy. but she yeah she lost no she went through qualifying all oh, right oh yeah first direct, I'm saying in, direct, direct entry right, right, right yeah yeah i'm saying direct entry mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so i gotta i mean i gotta go back and find the last player who made their main draw direct entry as a seed that's rare. At a slam. And she could be it's like a top rare, like right? 16 seed with decent clay results. I mean. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean, lots of. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I don't know if she's playing Stuttgart. I can't remember. But um, but even if it's just Madrid, Rome, yeah. that's a lot of points. Definitely. And she'll, and she'll be she'll be likely seated at those events. Anyways, all that all is to say, um, you know, she's she's been she's been an exciting one to get to know. And 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 that's um. Yeah, she's got like kind of this weird, like not weird personality. That's not that's not articulating it correctly. But again, just like her on court game, like this very very interesting mix of kind of this very chilled out persona. Like when you talk to her, mm-hmm. like she just seems like kind of like, yeah, like this is amazing, like that kind of yeah. <laughs> thing. But at the same time, she absolutely backs herself and believes herself, and kind of has that Canadian cockiness, uh, you know, that they you know that that kind of comes like that they have in other sports as well. Um, that's great. Um, and all of that combined, and it's just this very, very fresh package. Yeah, no, it is. And, and, and you right, there's this calm confidence and sort of unflappability that's been very cool to see. And even just talking to her right off, off the court after the biggest drama queen ever incident, like she was <laughs> like she was not really like upset by it, I would never say. Like she was just sort of like shrugging and being like, whatever, you know, scoreboard essentially after, you know, getting called out by like a you know, future Hall of Famer, three-time Grand Slam champ, former number one Kerber. Like she just, yeah, already just water off a duck's back to her. Or a Canadian it's very goose's like back. child of the millennium. Like yeah. you know, like very like not millennial. Because I mean, she I don't does she count as a millennial? Isn't she on like the younger end? I, but I like don't know. Yeah. you know, someone who's like grown up literally child like, of the internet. As as, Instagram, as, as yeah, like say. as Instagram was exactly as as Naomi would say, and just kind of like like. All of that stuff doesn't matter, right? Like, you can say whatever you want. I don't really care. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a way that that is very 
uh, foreign to my generation. And knows how to clap back, too. And knows how to clap back and and finds the clap back. I mean, you get this a little bit with Kirio, so sometimes there's a little bit more of an edge to it. Like, where the clapping back and the taking of stick and all that sort of sledging is part of the fun. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like the, they just don't really take it seriously. I don't. I don't think Bianca really takes it all seriously or really, really cares at all. That 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 Angie said what she said. So yeah. and it's. it's yeah, I I kind of love that. It's amusing. Also, you mentioned Karios there because Karios is the one person who called out <laughs> Angie directly, which was a highlight of Miami. It was amazing. It's it's all. It's sort of like I wish the WTA players could sort of you know drum up enough you know of I don't know of the what what would even be called regulating each other. In, in a way that, like, uh, so Karis didn't have to come pinch it, but it was it was appreciated and, and amusing. Um, eh. Speaking of Canadians with confidence, um, can we talk briefly about Dennis Shapovalov rapping? I feel like this is the moment to do that. Oh, no. Okay, you take the lead, though. I think it's... Well, I think we're kind of on the same page on this. Like, I think it's wonderful. Like, I'm all for this generation of children being, like, out there. And keep putting themselves weird. out there. Yes, keep tennis weird exactly. And like uh, Dennis report, I just saw reports this week that he split with uh, his coach Rob Steckley, who'd been doing all this sort of other video stuff with him and doing these like sort of skits and like elaborate things. And it's one where he was like covering himself in just tons and tons of sunscreen and just like his commitment to it and his earnestness with it was really impressive. And the rapping, like the actual rapping, was not terrible. the The writing was not good. I can say declaratively um but like that he has the sort of chutzpah to do it i thought was very cool and it, it fits but into me with the, problem, the, with the yeah go ahead is that he had past tense oh, the yeah. chutzpah to do it he was really he was really bummed about the reaction to it yeah he was legitimately he's bummed. not steph he's yeah. not steph like sits a pass clearly is like li- <laughs> is just living his truth uh surfing his reality um, nourishing his sensations like, is the term you're looking <laughs> nourishing for. his sensations nonstop, and like ain't no hater not even like the mass like trolling slash cyber bullying of the entire next gen class via twitter could like knock him off of like i'm gonna go fly my eight drones and i'm gonna go and edit in my room like you know like which i love and that's what i really really love about stephanos um and it's a similar thing with like osaka like she's just gonna do her and and she's fine with it Although she's a little bit more sensitive than Steph is. No one's but really come for Osaka like... the way people have come for Steph, I will say. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, agreed. Uh, because her quirks are a little bit cooler. And she just comes off as a cooler person, like, culturally cooler. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I mean, who's going to drag her for playing Overwatch, honestly? Yeah. Like, it's just, yeah. But then, so, yeah. So, like, that's what I was a little bit worried about when... Dennis did the rap, and first of all, shout out to Blair Henley. Oh yes, who was absolutely holding it down out there um, on court. Was that three? three? Mm-hmm. Yes, on Stadium Three, and it's again, it's that trust and that that you're able to, to build with a player that that you know gets them to do that on court. Um, but yeah, so then Dennis goes and raps, and like obviously, we all know as we're watching, it's like, oh man, we're all gonna make fun of him, aren't we? Yes, we are. But because, you know, I was personally inspired. You saw all the rhymes I came up with for him. I was like, Dennis, we will drop 
an EP okay. Ben, next week. your inspiration always comes out as a little bit of a passive aggressive, like, that was really terrible. No, it wasn't. For me, like, for me, like, I thought, like, the actual, like, the showmanship of it, the performance was good, but I thought the rhymes needed work. And they also didn't really just even try to rhyme with each other. So I just found my, for some reason, that day when I was, and I was also, you know, FOMOing a bit from Indie Walls, I'm FOMO. sure. Way but, FOMO. like, I felt like I had some really good quant- content that came out there. I was happily, happily, you know, give those workshop. to him workshop i mean i don't know if what workshop i feel like that's a pretty complete product i offered him but uh but yeah there was some good stuff and he and it was surprisingly a lot of chapeau material i was surprised but that's that was the thing is like i just i just i think even then i remember tweeting that day like like 15 minutes after it happened of just kind of like oh my god never change and just like oh my gosh i hope that he doesn't check his social media like you know because people are just gonna make fun of him and granted this was like a softer trolling from like the next geners of just kind of like because they really like him they do like they really genuinely like him as opposed to Steph so it was like very like look bro love you but this was hard to watch which is almost even more so it was worse (laughs) it's way worse than just being the fuck like you know like that guy's weird like this was kind of like man even though I like you so much I have to say something good (laughs) and I have to say I have to tell the world this that's brutal but yeah, I just it it broke my heart when you told me that he truly yeah was in Miami I he, he got asked about it and he just generally seemed like pretty sort of wounded about it and I and I hope that he can build up his his confidence again and come back you know you know like I haven't seen Eight Mile but I imagine there's some sort of plot line like that where he gets knocked down and comes back stronger or whatever I, anyway uh, Dennis keep keep doing you and 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 yeah and and I don't yeah Sitsipas is a unique hawk in this in this he's a hawk unicorn like a unicorn hawk yeah he's like a hawk with a horn it's it's a, a, a unicorn flying yeah. weird no it's, it's it's a lot and, and love him terrible driver as we learned and and he <laughs> did also um he did some other uh i don't know even vlog or video where he was also like filming himself by riding it looked like a motorcycle or a scooter and i was yeah, like oh my god don't worried. do that no after you had one crash already in the caribbean stuff like Stay off the motor vehicles maybe for a while. I will say this, like watching Steph's vlogs, I re- I have Googled more than once a drone. Oh, yeah? Like I'm like, su- I'm like super tempted, like really digging the drone footage you're doing there, Steph. You don't listen to the podcast. I don't know why I'm talking to you like you do. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like, yeah, like I, I'm inspired by his, you know, kind of singularity and his commitment to it. Um, and his drone footage, I think, is his best work. The other stuff with, you know, like his 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 groundwork is good. And he's got a good eye for certain things. He's pretty good with framing. But his drone work is really solid stuff, I got to say. And go. it makes me want to buy a drone and, like, try it out. Yeah. But I do not have, you know, 2,000 bucks to just throw it out on a drone. There are cheaper but drones than that. You can get a pretty cheap drone, I feel like, these as days. As if Ben... How long have we known each other? I know. You're not going to... The only thing you don't, you know... You're, you're, yeah. Only McDonald's for your food. I was going to say, you're going to say McDonald's, aren't you? <laughs> Something about McDonald's. I was trying to figure out how to phrase that, but McDonald's was the obvious counterexample. Yes. But yeah. No. I. Since when would I bu- ever buy cheap electronics? Just would never happen. And neither but, would Steph, yeah. for that matter, clearly. Neither would Steph. And so I totally just, like, am jealous of his whole... All of his, like, gear geeking out. On... Let's see what else there is. Uh... Federer won beach chapeau in the semis pretty easily and then won the final of Miami over Isner, who was struggling with a foot injury that's been since diagnosed as a stress fracture. Uh, Roger is going to play clay. 
which I guess was sort of more official since we last recorded. Um, or at least he's, you know, entered Madrid. He's, I think he's going to play the French Correct. Open. It seems like just those two for now. I don't think he's on the Rome list or Rome hasn't been talked about anyway. Um, but w- is this a good idea? I got to say, like, I'm not, like, super enthused for Roger on clay as much as I'm excited for fans on the continent that get to see him. Like, I'm not sure why he's doing this. I don't get it. Do you? Because I think the no no clay thing worked. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, you know, but but I think it's different. I mean, I I was having this conversation with our our good friend Chad, Mm -hmm. um, who was in, uh, yeah, who was in Charleston, a photographer, uh, did a great job and had a good, I hope had a good time. Um, But we were talking a little bit on the last day of Charleston about that in, in, in relation with Serena. Of like, you know, kind of the, the, the ongoing fan debate, I guess, I suppose, about whether or not she should play clay, whether she shouldn't, you know, the arguments that, you know, maybe not and, you know, things like that. But it, but it's 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 kind of funny that um, and I can't I can't remember, Ben, if this is a conversation that you and I just happen to have at some point um, without a recorder running mm-hmm. or if this was on a podcast before. But um, but just kind of like the illusory nature of chasing a record that in a lot of ways, there are very genuinely good arguments to be made that it's not really a real record. Are we talking about Maggie here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> yes, like the Margaret Court existing thing is a problem uh, in, in Serena's life and the tennis life. Or Margaret Court's 24. But, it shouldn't, but the the point is that it shouldn't be, right? Like, I mean, like... It in other words, if, right? It's because the thing that that's really kind of not heartbreaking—that's overstating it—but but just kind of like I guess bothersome to me. And and I say I, I say all this only as a pivot from Roger, only because I I think it's interesting that obviously this doesn't apply to Roger. Yeah. Or at least like right like like Roger, he just seems to like really just especially the way that he talks about it. Like I just like playing tennis. It's just fun. It's a lot of fun I being like Roger walking. Federer. It is. I get to walk into arenas and people freaking love me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that must be amazing. And I'm kind of playing without that extra pressure, and he's not chasing really any yeah. records other than Connors. And kind Serena, of. like, never has that. Yeah, and Serena doesn't have that. And that's what, like, kind of, like, bothers me a lot is because, especially now, and obviously she's 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 um kind of participated, she's inserted herself into that narrative as well. I mean, you know, she... she has I think made it pretty clear that she's not it's not like she's come back to just like have a good time you know uh and play tennis because that's just fun in and of itself I mean she's she wants slams and she wants effectively that slam record um it was super interesting and, in, in in Miami she was asked like you know if she considers her return so far a success and mm-hmm. her and her answer was sort of like it was interesting because she was like you see her sort of thinking through it because obviously we know with Serena, anytime she starts about a Grand Slam, leaving with anything other than the trophy is a failure in her eyes. Um, right. But at the same time, she, she says that explicitly, right. and she she says that, and it's it's understood. And but at the same time, like she also recognizes, like on paper, her year was very impressive. Was I mean, she you know made Back-to-back two Slam finals, finals after having a kid, made it into the top ten after playing only a very small handful of tournaments. She was won a point away of making three straight Slam finals. Yeah. I mean, uh, hmm? not not a point, but getting there. What do you? She was in the quarters. Point. Oh, quarter. Quarter, sorry, I thought that was a semi. Whoops, no, quarter. My bad. It's okay. Um, no, but I mean, she's, 
you know, she's had a good, and that's again, the, the, the sort of, like you said, not heartbreaking seems like overstating, but like where the bar is for Serena is so preposterous that, you know, it's like so it, that she has to, that it's... she has to come out and be a 37 year old mom of, you know, and come at, at one of the oldest number ones ever, even before she had her kid. Um, and then coming back a whole life-changing physical and emotional whatever experience after that and adding more time onto the clock too and be ex- and, and set the bar at title or bust and then when she does fall short of those those titles by one match each it's not she's still getting lots of praise let's be clear people are not dumping on serena in the media right. or in the in the public and she's still in this very much imperial icon phase in, in american culture uh and so that's she's still getting plenty of rewards that way but you know you know that she's like she wants more, and that's and that's like that's that's quite a quite a I want to say like monster she's created, but it, that feels unfair to her to give her responsibility for it. It's yeah, it's, it's I just, guess that's yeah. right. It just feels it just feels unfair, and yeah, and that's where. But I mean, obviously, you know, when we talk going back to the original query, right, of just kind of like you know, should Roger play on Clay or. You know, things like that. I mean, to me, like, yeah, sure. I mean, if you're having fun and you just want to, like, go and have a good time in Madrid and, and Paris and, like, whatnot and that Wimbledon is not your end-all be-all and that you're not chasing necessarily slams and all these sorts of things, sure, go. I mean, it's great for fans and God bless you for, you know, kind of supporting the sport in that way. And I'm sure the Madrid tournament will roll out a big blue carpet for you. <laughs> um, but, but you know, but then it, it, it's just so stark to kind of have you know, these two respective goats of their sport kind of like operating on completely different expectation scales where meanwhile, I would not say the same thing necessarily to Serena. Like, you know, like, like if you're, because it just really does feel, and I think that she's made it clear from the beginning that this isn't just about going through the motions and not going through the motions, but just like, oh, I just love the, the thrill of the competition. Like, I think Venus does. Venus now. Yeah, I think Venus like loves the fight. Like I think that there's a lot that of just of that and I don't think the Venus is like necessarily slam or bust, you know? So there is a little bit more of kind of she's a little bit more shading towards the Roger philosophy. But with Serena, you're almost kind of like, but if that's what you're chasing and that's what your goal is, don't play on clay. Yeah. Just like be fully healthy and get that serve absolutely clocking and go crush it at Wimbledon. And play Birmingham. <laughs> like honestly, yeah. like play something that builds up to it. And or obviously I know that I know that she like, Yeah, my oh, my orca would be like a nice random term. Seriously be a good sort of out of the way, very little media there. And the media probably would follow her there, you know. Some jackass looking at myself um, would probably was, go, to my, go, say, go to Mallorca. Ben, Serena was going to be go- there. Googling Mallorca. I know. I've already That's looked at a, flights once yeah. you said that. But um, but no, like there's, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just tough. And and I, it's different on the, on the we talked about Venus in past years, have Venus debating whether or not she should skip clay. Because she really seemed to have less hope of winning or even contending or like the French Open than, than Serena has. And Serena's obviously won it several times pretty recently. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I, I was not encouraged by what I saw from Serena last month. Like, you know, obviously she had some health issues. She rolled her ankle at the end of her showing up in loss. She had some sort of illness in Indian Wells that she pulled out of her second round match after playing a great first match against Victoria Azarenka, one of the better matches of the year by anybody. Best straight set match you'll, you'll see in a very long time. Yeah, and then... 
But then in Miami, she just looked not good against Rebecca Peterson in that first match and didn't look as in as good shape as she had earlier in the year, honestly. And she just, and she, you know, struggled through it, got breadsticks in the second set and won in the third and then pulled out again before playing Wong Chung, I think. And yeah, I don't know. I just like, it was just like that sort of downbeat ending makes it yeah all the more question. It's just hard to do what she's doing. It's hard to be a player who's at her age now, who even as good as she is, who's like trying to pick her spots and, and, and be a part-time player. Cause she's not playing a full-time schedule. I think it's, even if she is, you know, dedicated to tennis, she's not playing a full-time schedule. Um, and she has other priorities in her life. Like she's not playing Madrid this year. It seems like in large part because she's doing this Met Gala thing that she has coming up. And that's great. Even to get to like be a Met Gala host or leader, whatever her title is there. Like, cool. But like, that's still, makes it tougher for you on the tennis side and that may, especially when you're so relatively undercooked match wise and so maybe yeah maybe just bailing on on clay is not that she can't come out and win the french open because i think she fully can right of course uh, yeah. so maybe don't bail on clay but at the same time like there has to the the input and the output like are are related at, at some point and you do even for serena even if the physics for her are way different in her universe like even she has to at some point like adequately build up to winning a grand slam i feel like she has i feel like she has to do more foundational work now than she would have early in her career right and and i think that this does go and and dovetail into again what we were talking about from the very start which is the parody on the tour and this has been my broken record since since serena did come back and and i i truly believe it uh, you know, even back last spring, uh, when she when she started everything, to win seven matches over two weeks against this field is a tough ask. Mm-hmm. It, it and it's a tougher ask than it was three years ago, and that was a tougher ask than it was three years before that. I genuinely believe that every single person that you talk to that is on tour that has been around tennis will say that that you know that the depth on the women's tour. We can all talk about. Whether or not you think that that is depth because, you know, whether you think it's depth because we're working out of a shallow pool or you think it's depth because, you know, like it's an actual Olympic sized training facility. Mm -hmm. um, We can argue about that. But the fact of the matter is they're all beating up on each other and every one of them believes that every one of them can beat each other at any given moment. No losses or results surprise these women anymore. I think that with Serena... It's 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 the same sort of thing. I mean, you look at the fields, and and granted, she got some some slightly softer fields in 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 uh, uh, French Open, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open. Wimbledon, especially, yeah, yeah. They they were softer fields. Uh, obviously, an, an absurd draw for her uh, at the Australian Open. She lost in the quarterfinals, right? Yeah. Um, she had to put, go against Halep. She had to go against Pliskova. You know, well early in that tournament. So. You know, and, and, and now when you, if you're paying attention to the women's tour and you look at the players that she could draw in the first two rounds in the first week, there's a lot of landmines mm-hmm. outside of the top 32. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you start to worry and you start to wonder, okay, over seven matches, like, you know, if you had to go through everybody, if you pull a Kanepi in the first round, right? Like, yeah. you know, or a Bouchard cannon or whatever. Is, yeah. A cannon, a Bouchard's floating out there. I mean, on any given day, if she gets up for it, it could be tough. Um, you know, Yastremska, you know, all of these players. So Tomjanovic, that's really yeah. where, yeah, Tomjanovic, yeah, exactly, dangerous. I mean, 
that's where things are different now. And that's why, again, and we have said this on this podcast numerous times, it was a huge disservice, I think, to everyone, both Serena, the tour, the individual women that make up the tour, when ev- when she came back and everybody just presumed she was just going to march to titles. Hmm. Because what she's trying to do is so, so hard. And that just should give you better perspective on what she has done um, in terms of over her career and how many majors she was able to have and how long she's been a dominant force on the women's tour. But it's an uphill climb now. And that's not to say she won't do it because she's freaking Serena. Who's going <laughs> to bank against Serena? You're crazy if you would. But let's not pretend it's not harder. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the biggest thing. I, and, I, yeah. I just hope she gets it because I want her to go back to the beginning. I want her to be able to enjoy the sort of like, I don't know if she'd ever allow herself to be as relaxed, but like I'd love to see Serena in like a Federer mode, you know, to have these like, because Federer is totally on like victory lap mode constantly and feels like he has been for the last 10 years in a lot of ways (laughs) since he he broke, because the bar was much lower for him numerically. I mean, he got to be the all-time men's slam winner leader when he got to number 15. So, I mean, like, that's such a different hill than 25, which Serena's been tasked with. Um, So, and I I do think also, I'm fully ready to say this, like, if Serena ever gets to 24, like, the tie should go to her so emphatically. And, yeah, she should already get it on the Stephen being one short of Margaret Court. Um, It's, again, like, very annoying numbers we've talked about before uh, with all the asterisks available. Yeah, she's already the best. Like, she should be in this mode now. And, but I just feel that she's still, yeah. That's so frustrating to me. Like, it's it's just, it's just... And it's not frustrating from a historical standpoint. Like, I understand it as somebody who, like, obviously is, you know, immersed in the the history of the tour and history of the sport. And obviously that number means something. But just, like, from a personal level, like, we all know. We all know that this is just – it's just not a thing that she needs to chase. Yeah. And she should – if she wants to come back and compete, it should be fun. It should be enjoyable. It should be, you know, an opportunity for her to – yeah, to have that Federer-esque – you know, victory lap of just, hey, let's just appreciate how awesome it is to be alive when Serena Williams plays tennis, yeah. you know? And it just feels like every time she takes the court, it's fraught. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable for everyone involved. Yeah, it's it's, t- it's tense. <laughs> Win or loss. Yeah. It's just tense, yeah, you know? And yeah. it, I, I just, I don't like, I don't like that for her. No. <laughs> she deserves, she deserves better than we that. We talked about that a lot in 2015 when she was going for that career slam. Just like right, how, yes. you talked about that a lot, like how nervous you were on her behalf, you know, <laughs> yeah. going into that. And we saw that even, you know, again, she's not, she's, as much as people talk about her being a superhero, she's so incredibly mortal and so human and, and moments, and that's what makes her compelling. And, you know, moments like the Vinci match show that very clearly. Um, on a completely different note, I can pivot fairly hard here. Uh, mentioned Federer beating Isner. Um, are you up for talking about this Delray tweet? I'm sort of intrigued um, by it. Sure. I mean, I don't know have much to add to it. I think well, the only I have to add to it is literally what I texted you, which is, who's running social media? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that was my only question. Okay. Well, let me let me just. I'll, I'll you introduce, should set it up. I'll introduce this. So, um, mentioned Federer beating. Isner um, and Isner is out with a stress fracture um, and for a few weeks he might miss the whole clay season it seems like uh, after making Miami final backing up his title there uh, pretty impressive you know last 12 months for John making it to Wimbledon semi for the first time blah, 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 blah. 
none of this on-court success and his general popularity, I think, within the tennis world, I think it's fair to say he's a very well-liked guy by other ATP players, uh, has done anything for his popularity among tennis Twitter fans, as fair to say. And there was a pretty striking uh, interaction when the Delray Beach account tweeted some sort of supportive message to him uh, saying, oh, you know, get to spend time with his daughter, uh, six months old, hope, you know, he enjoys his time at home while he's resting and recuperating and all the best, John. And and uh, a tennis fan, uh, Giselle, said, uh, you know, sort of criticized or, you know, I guess, how do I phrase this? Bemoaned John procreating, I guess, <laughs> and said, uh, just when we need more white women being raised racist and believing that they're subservient to men, uh, Delray Beach Twitter account got very upset at this and said, just what we don't need, another baseless, toxic social media comment that bears no merit whatsoever. It slanders a good guy who happens to be white and his six-month-old daughter who happens to be white too. Consider this idea, Giselle, be the change you seek. And that's just a, a, a fairly more direct than usual opportunity to talk about Isner and politics in tennis, I guess. And this, you know, debate, I guess, that some people have, and some people are very, think it's not a debate, it's not even a conversation, they think you're decided about how much you should, and this went back to Sangren or whatever else before, it's a more extreme example, I think, but how much you should let a player's politics, or, you know, your impression of them, color your thoughts on them as a, as a person, or as a, as a character in this world that people are obviously very attached to in, in terms of tennis, and I, 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 whatever direction you want to take this in, Courtney, I'd go for it. But I'm just sort of, I think it's interesting. I don't know if we need to, if it's sort of a, we need to talk about John Isner type moment or something like that, or if he's, or <laughs> the problematicness of this fave or whatever else people would phrase it, or not a fave. I, for I most mean, people. I don't really, I don't really have anything like controversial or interesting to necessarily add other than to say that everyone should be able to fan up the way that they want to. And if mm-hmm. somebody, um, you know, and I think that, you know, there are different varying instant, varying situations that we've seen amongst uh, amongst athletes, amongst uh, tennis athletes, uh, professionals who, you know, I've seen some get swept into a whole political discussion that they've never inserted them in themselves in. I've seen others. Obviously, I think probably John and, and Sandgren are, are the flip side where they, they make their political uh, affiliations and, and, and feelings on on very hot topic issues fairly clear yeah john's I mean, likes column yeah on twitter for yeah sure. i mean that so you know once you you kind of do make it public and, and you're out there if i mean you can, i don't think you really have a, a, a it's not the time to then like you know clutch your pearls and be like oh i'm, I'm absolutely stunned that, that 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 fans might gauge you know of weigh in on me one way or the other want to cancel me or consider me problematic or whatever is the parlance of our times mm-hmm. right so i mean i don't i don't think that there's really that much to discuss i mean that's just i mean i don't know I, I to me what was more surprising about it was just that you know as one who runs an official account <laughs> um or at least an account that is associated with the federation i am surprised that 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 tweet was sent um, because, yeah, that's a slippery slope. Um, it, it was a surprising seen, tweet. Yes, but go ahead. And, and and yeah, and, we, and we've seen instances elsewhere of, of other, you know, tournaments who who who, yeah, 
take pops at fans and whatever and things like that. I, I just don't think that that's the way to go um, across the board, regardless of what it is. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. But I don't know. I mean, like if somebody has certain politics that you find personally offensive and I can absolutely understand anyone who would scroll through John's likes or see what, you know, tennis had tweeted, you know, back in the day and all these sorts of things and find them and consider them personal attacks. Mm -hmm. Like I would absolutely understand that. And so if that then is obviously triggers a very, you know, pissed off reaction to anyone attempting to be like, oh, but that he's a nice guy. And John is a nice guy. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, as I mean, he is like, there's just absolutely no way around it. When we talk about that, like, he's never been rude. He's very professional and about how he goes about his business. Super he's very collegial. Well yeah. Super collegial, very well liked in the locker room, all these sorts of things. But understandably, that's not enough for a lot of people. And that's perfectly fine. Like, sorry. Like, yeah. I, I just, you know, it's as simple as that. Like, yeah. I under, I understand the, uh, I don't think they should have actually tweeted it, but I understand the reaction from that sort of nice collegial thing we're talking about. And I've gotten along, I still cover men's tennis. I've gotten along, you know, very well with John since I've been on tour. And he was playing Washington, which is the first tournament I did back, you know, when he was coming up as a player too. So I've known John for a long time. So I, and I, so I reflectively understand when people, who, like whoever was running this Delray Beach account, sees, you know, that kind of vitriol coming at John and feels compelled to defend him because they've, that person's had positive experiences with John. And I get that. And, but at the same time, I also totally think it's fine and valid if you want to take your, you know, opinion of someone based on their politics or based on their political expressions and whatever affront they may feel like to you and come to a conclusion there. I, I do think there are times on tennis Twitter, and I'll say, I think it comes specifically with Danielle Collins, when there are completely out of whack reactions to her in terms of calling her all sorts of things and names that I don't think there's any basis for that I've seen whatsoever. Um, and just assuming the worst about people in a way that's, um, I find frustrating and unfair. Right. I mean, and that's what I think the distinction I was trying to draw, which is like, it's one thing to draw conclusions about a person based on the things that they've put out there publicly. Yeah. It's quite another to assume things or to make up these completely cockamamie and offensive narratives yeah. about a person just because you think that they fall into a cookie cutter mold yeah. of a thing that you you assume dislike. you assume the worst about them with like very yeah. little basis and people calling her like KKK Collins or whatever like what the what I'm the so, hell like, is that as about one, as one who has spoken with Danielle and has had a lot of like pretty deep discussions with her about a lot of different topics. I have wanted to write an article that's just called like Danielle Collins is not what you think she is. Yeah. But like, I'm just going to leave it at that for now until I end up writing that article. But like, you know, it's, it's just, it's real. It's, it's, I agree with you, Ben. Like that's like the one, the one kind of like tennis Twitter player narrative that is the most bothersome to me. Like flat out. Yeah. Because it's so off. <laughs> I, I I agree, and I and I and I bless mean, her. I mean, she doesn't give a crap about anybody, so she's not going to go out there and defend herself on Twitter. Very glad, she's like you not know on what I mean, Twitter, like yeah. which is very Danielle. Like she's just like whatever. You can think whatever you think want of me. Like I'm just here to win. Like you know what I mean? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's fair. And, and I, I guess I guess to 
not that I, you know, I'm going to defend John's politics here, but like to the extent that like, I don't know, like the, the putting out that much negativity towards a picture of him holding his six year old, six month old daughter. Like, I don't know if that's necessary either. Like, I feel like there's ways to have opinions without having them be as barbed. I guess not that I'm trying to, and, you, and if, you do and you. If you. And if you, and if but, you go through his likes, there's a way for him to have his opinions without making them public either. No, no, I don't, I do not understand it's his likes column at all. Honestly, I don't get it. Honestly, it, it's very, t- and like, I'm obviously, I, I don't encourage like that sort of kind of toxic player, like fan to player interaction. But a lot of times, like, I don't know, in this day and age, you put it out there, then you really do have to kind of be prepared to get like back and I wouldn't do it, but I absolutely 100% like understand why somebody would. And I'm not going to tell them that they were wrong. Yeah. The Twitter, I think just that's like a thought exercise. The Twitter likes being our Avenue for seeing this is John's, you know, speech essentially in like a free speech kind of context is interesting. It's like a relatively passive way to be going about it. I mean, as, as if you're gonna do anything, like liking tweets is the most like indirect thing. It's di- different than what Sangram was doing, you know, writing your own things or reamplifying your own things. I don't know. It's just it's. I think it's an interesting sort of thought thing. Yeah, this one isn't. It isn't. This one isn't close to me. Yeah. Like for me, as an issue. Okay. Like it's just not. It's just like it's. You know. Yeah, I mean, I can rewind things to 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 you know three years ago and remember what it felt like to feel you know and, and oh, maybe sure. since then like obviously I've become numb to everything and I don't really give a shit anymore and you know like whatever people are gonna say what they want to say and people are gonna support what they want to support and everybody's true colors come through and like whatever but I certainly can put myself back in that position of like really feeling like you know that 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 anybody that was supporting certain voices on 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 social and especially people who are supporting certain policies um whether tacitly or ex- or expressively or expressly was yeah absolutely i felt like it was an attack that's fair yeah no you're and right that, it's a you know like it that that's the thing and and that's and that's where you know it comes into the broader things of of when we talk about this sport when we talk about any sport when we talk about society as a whole but like even just everything that had happened you know obviously in march and um just you know all of the 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 stuff with with the ATP Council and and Gimmelstab and all these sorts of things. It's like, you know, when you talk to people, everybody excuses everybody. Yeah. That's what we do, right? That's because we true. all know each other, and we all. I'm not going to be rude to you to your face. I certainly am not because this is also my workspace, and these are also the people that I need to make sure, you know, I play the right game with, and and you know all that sort of stuff. But this is also how the beast grows up into being what it is today. Is because people didn't call out people left and right, front and center all the time, and you know, and so I absolutely understand like people wanting to do that now, and, and the tenor of it changing because, I mean, otherwise, yeah, things get things are allowed to run amok. No, that's that, that's that's very well put, and you're right about the gimbal stop stuff, and yeah, people not saying anything, and then that silence leads to permissiveness and essentially you know tacit approval or tacit indifference or something uh yeah so that's that's and it's not even that i mean it it doesn't even have to be something like is like kind of like black and white or something like that but even just like going down to like 
Roger Rafa, if you were so mad, why you say something? Like, you know, like, about, like, Kermode and stuff. Right. It's like, like, you know, or even, like, transition tour stuff or, you know, things happen in the sport and then all of a sudden everybody, like, is like, whoa, whoa, hold on. It's like, just, I mean, maybe if you guys just would just express your displeasure or your thoughts or engage on the front end, things would be helpful. No, it's true. Um, yeah. Right? Like, it, it, so it's not, I don't mean it to be this whole, like, political thing. I mean, it's just like, I, th- I just think that it's like a general... Uh, like culture, I guess. Yeah, you know, so within the sport a, as a it's whole, a, it's a path of least resistance a lot of times, and a path of right, yeah, not wanting to interfere and in independent contractors and whatever else you want to say. This sort of like detached way people can float through this world and see something and not say something, um, for better and worse. And that's why again, why like Nick Kyrgios is such an outlier <laughs> because Nick Kyrgios will be <laughs> policing the other locker room too, which is just again spectacular. Um, <laughs> On on Kermode, we haven't talked about him. Um, that was a big off court development, and I don't even know how much to, what I can say about it because, frustratingly, there's been really no reason given by any of the people who orchestrated his ouster, and they have all very, I think, uh, disingenuously washed their hands of it and sort of you know been like oh it's just you know the group decides and da 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 time for you know, a, a new voice or whatever. And, oh, it was not my decision. It was the council's decision. It wasn't my decision. It was the board's decision, whatever. Um, but this sent a lot of, I think, a lot of surprise and a lot of upset through the sort of corridors of the sport um, that, you know, this, I think it's fair to call it sort of a coup happened with, with Chris Kermode, who by all reports, people within the, you know, not speaking just on the sort of organizer side of the sport, thought he was doing a, a really solid job and for him to be ousted without clear cause was I think unnerving to people. So I'm, I'm as someone who I guess works on a different federation and obviously not speaking on behalf of WTA, but like what do, what do you make of, of that sort of unrest and what it says about where the machinations of the sport are now? Um, well, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously I'm like way not a part of it. Um, yeah. So I, I don't really know what um whatever all of it I mean I know what everybody's reported basically is is my base of knowledge but um I think that what you kind of said kind of hit the nail on the head which is that the organizations seemed like they were quite supportive of Kermode and happy with what he had done and everything but this was really a player driven thing right and um and that was it is it, that based on the reporting it sounds like you know the player council or Whatever, because since nobody's taking ownership, you actually don't know who to. That's kind what's of, so frustrating about it. It's a lack of ownership. to put this yeah. on, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like so. I guess some players. I'll put, I guess <laughs> I'll say that. Um, I guess a group of players thought that you know he was constantly siding with the tournaments because he was constantly the 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 vote break. Uh, the he was Pence. I mean, tiebreaker. Like the yeah. yeah, he was a tiebreaker. Sorry, um, and he, that he was siding too often with the tournaments. And that, um, and that the players were getting the, the the short end of the stick, and so this is kind of seemingly kind of step one of like a forty part mini series in terms of kind of the what it seems like to be the goal of this group of players to kind of reshape and to to re empower the the players, um, whether that is through a players union which is something that has been discussed, whether that's through, um, you know, a complete rewrite of kind of the makeup and the composition of the voting powers um, on the council and the board 
um, whatever it is, or maybe it's just a maybe it's just a flex of mm. just like we do have the power to do this. Like you, you can't just sit there and trample on us. And maybe you know that shot across the bow, uh, which unfortunately took out Chris Kermode. <laughs> um, you know, it it maybe it it realigns the the politics. I guess I don't know. I mean, this is the problem, which is what you hit what you said before, which is that like we don't know. We don't really know what. Um, Con- concretely um, was the the motivating factor behind it all because nobody will take ownership of of the decision. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's, it was kind of ingenious. Like, I mean, you know, they kind of got away with it. It was like a, completely. It was the kind like, of like a survivor, like the show sort of blindside where like someone gets voted off and you thought they, you know, there was no reason for them to get voted off yet. And they, but yet their torch goes and then everyone else is left a tribal council being like, well, we're all still here. I guess we got to do something. And yeah, and, and yeah. like the alliances were slowly forming, but like it wasn't until it was too late that you realized that they had the numbers. An alliance yeah. had tur- yeah, exactly. An alliance had turned into a voting block, like yeah. you know, um, and things like that. So, um, but I mean, I will say this: as much as like um, so much of what is was happening um, in the discussion surrounding it all was was very, I think, anti that group of players. Mm-hmm. You know, like. I, I, it felt like there was kind of this groundswell of support for Kermode and or at least kind of a, like a whoa, 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 guys, like, let's talk about this, you know, sort of sort of thing. Um, and, and where, you know, Djokovic or 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 Gimmelstab and Egdis and um, who's the other guy? The brother? Oh, Alex Sports Inglot. Radar. Yeah. Alex Inglot. Um, and, you know, and, and the kind of voting block that allowed it all to happen, like, oh, you're the bad guys. But, you know, I... I will say that just like, I don't know, you know, like in 10, 15, 20 years, this could end up weirdly being something that was good. You know, like if this leads to like a player union, if this leads to a restructuring and all these sorts of things, then, you know, in hindsight, we're going to look at back and be like, you know what, that was pretty courageous and blah, 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 blah. And and we complain all the time about tennis kind of being stuck in its its rhythms and in the status quo and nothing ever changes. And maybe revolution, revolution was necessary. That all being said, like. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I, I I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that that is the case, but I'm willing to at least be patient and see kind of how it, it plays out because I'm I'm willing to acknowledge that I could be wrong. Right, I, I I'm for that, but I I think my this, my conclusion I'm TBD on if this was the right move or not, but I am decided that this has been a complete communications failure by the side that did this. Like I think there should be more rationale given and i but think why? i think I, I think that as you know you're saying that as a reporter like i'm, I'm saying that they got away with it they didn't have to as it turns out like everybody was sitting there in indian wells like making fun of them being like what the heck like nobody's taking ownership and they're like Mer-. like you know tough but, luck this is here's here's this but, mealy mouth statement and that's the last thing we're going to say about it and like literally that's been the last thing that i don't know if they got away with like, it or not though have, I, don't, I don't think that i mean i think I they as of right now it seems like they've kind of they controlled it like they 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 kind of slipped away and they went underground and no one is talking and no one's leaking anything i mean from their perspective like but, why should they have had to say anything but i think they i'm, I, I'm playing I think devil's there needs, advocate here. right i understand that but i think there needs to be clarity because this would be a post that unless there's again like some sort of more radical reform happening they'll need to get filled and like what qualified you know desirable candidate would ever take the job when they see a predecessor who by any sort of normal metric was doing very successfully get, you know, felled um, by this sort of, you know, backroom coup. 
for no explanation. Like who who would want to get on that seat next when you don't yeah, have when I mean, you don't have an explanation for what happened? And and, and it, the other sort of tone they just had, I just found obnoxious, where they were talking about in this statement from the players board reps. So I guess Gimmelstab, Agnes, and Inglot, where they were like, oh, "We're surprised at all the attention which this internal decision has made." Like you know, like you're ousting the public head of your company of this big international sport like people will notice i'm stunned that the assassination of archduke ferdinand started i mean it was in the newspaper i didn't understand that you know (laughs) it was so weird yeah but i mean i think that the thing is i would i would say it i understand your point but i would say it a little bit differently which is that like it's not that to me i agree with you that that things have been set up to be quite ten- tenuous for whoever steps into that position because not only has I mean you do need the tournament reps to approve that hire like and now you've completely pissed off the tournaments right mm-hmm. by what you've done group of players so how do you you know if the tournaments wanted to I presume and I'm not I am no expert in the ATP rulebook and how their board works and things like that so that's a big caveat here but just from a human perspective like if I wanted to be petty and I was on the tournament council, I'd be like, I will never, ever over my dead body will I ever approve anybody that you put forward. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, no, it's never going to happen, right? So I think that it's not that, but, but, so I agree with you on that. But I think the reason for that is less about the communication because they can communicate that stuff privately to whoever is the future candidate. They don't have to say it publicly. But the problem is the way that it was done of not getting consensus, of not getting, you know, the the greats, you know, of Roger and Rafa and even someone vocal like Stan and, you know, and, and those players to get be on your side explicitly, to not do that work, right? To to kind of get, make it seem as though this was like a a a thing where the players actually did have not just voting leverage, but actual leverage. Mm-hmm. Like mass numbers. Um I think that would have been a far more successful, like, coup than what this was, which was basically kind of like, yeah, creating a secret alliance and then just, like, deciding when you wanted to to vote whoever you wanted off. off. And I think that that breaks a lot of relationships and that breaks a lot of trust. And there was – I have to think that there was another way to do it where you would set it up where, okay, you got the person out that you wanted, but you also didn't burn every single bridge. Right. So that your future plan was effectively dead on arrival because you will never get the support for it. Mm-hmm. So I think politically, I have questions about kind of the chess moves that got there, but I don't think that it's like connected to like a poor, like, oh, they should have told us why. I mean, they don't think they, it turns out they didn't need to. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that conclusion, but I do think that all the way you're describing it is reminds me so much of Brexit. <laughs> all this sort of like, oh, we have this, you know, this like small majority that had enough votes to pull off this big thing. And now we're like, oh, now what? Ah. Um, and yeah, I, I just don't know what the future future holds. So it'll be interesting to see how things sort themselves out or, or not in the future and how. I mean, they'll figure it out. Know. I mean, it's not it's not end of the world. It's not cataclysmic. They will eventually be able to find somebody. And but but yeah. It's it's tough to kind of, in a lot of ways, be in what feels like a bit of a transition year on the court. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, have all of this kind of backroom stuff happening as well, yeah. as opposed to looking like a kind of a um, um, like kind of like a like a complete and total package that's like well cared for. I, I'm not saying it right. But you know what I mean? Like yeah. 
if you're having a transition year, you want to at least make sure like the business side's all shored up and, you know, or vice versa or something like that. But, um, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. It's the ATP. They always land on their feet. They'll be fine. Um, it, well, <laughs> one, one, one thing that we didn't, met, I we said it in the last episode, I think we talked about him, but, or maybe earlier than that, even because it's been in the news for a while now, but I will add, because I didn't mention it explicitly before. It is also crazy to me that all these things are happening <laughs> under the direction, or at least, you know, very much in the front row with Justin Gimmelstab being the orchestrator of this while he is still actively facing violent felony charges uh, in a very much undecided case and that he's still has his hands on that after stepping back from tennis channel due to those same circumstances that he's not allowed to be a commentator, but is allowed to be a, um, you know, big power broker, I think is incredibly tennis in the worst ways in terms of the messiness of it. So, I mean, that's my caveat there. Just, just adding one more, kind of like thing that I've never really understood um, is like, it's surprising that they can have a three person council or board or whatever of the player reps or whatever. Mm -hmm. And two of them are tennis channel employees. That's also weird. Yes. Yes. That's just, I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything like what I'm just saying that like, that seems so like politically disqualifying. Well, they (laughs) got, they got uh, the keeper Agdes. Agdes is like, I guess he's South African. Even though he's lived in the U.S. for a long time, as far as I know, and but he like represents Africa, Asia, Australia region or something on the board. Even though he's an LA-based tennis channel employee, which seems a little bit, you know, sketch. I don't know. It just I I don't know. It just seems like from if I were a player voting for those people or like whatever that that would seem if you wanted. And but you know this goes back to what I was saying before about like. Nobody really pays attention to anything until something happens. And then they're like, no, that's not what I wanted. Like, I'm not entirely convinced that, like, every player – and this applies to both sides, like, the ATP and the WTA, like, or ITF or whatever. I don't – I'm not convinced that everyone's, like, super mega engaged in the political happenings of Mm -hmm. their tours, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, to where they would even red flag it, I guess, you know? Like, it would just be, oh, okay. Yeah, and that goes to the ITF tour stuff, too. Like, how, you know, how people are only sort of realizing what a problem it was once it gets into, like, February, March and – Granted, a lot of that was because of lack of information out there, but people are slow to react to weather forecasts until it actually starts raining on them in tennis. Speaking of other changes, one thing we have not discussed, which we probably should, is uh, New Miami, which we were both at for the first time, as was everybody this year, the New Miami Open venue. Um, I thought it was pretty good. I I got there. I was there for the first week, and I think my experience and stuff on the outer courts and everything was far superior to what it was in Keep Skane. I think there definitely should be some work aesthetically and mostly aesthetically, honestly, in just terms of how it looks on TV for the main stadium court. But overall, I, I think the move was validated and, and justified uh, by this, certainly by the attendance numbers, which went way up this year. Um, yeah, and I, I think that it was, I think that it all went pretty well. I'm curious what your impressions were, Courtney, also after first seeing it on TV and then arriving midway through the tournament. Yeah, no, I watched the first week, um, yeah, from home here in California, and I certainly had one opinion of it, uh, just based off what I was seeing. You know, I mean, I, I think that there were just, a, as Ben said, a few just aesthetic things on the state on the main stadium court that 
could probably be improved. Um, you know, there were times from certain cam- camera angles that it looked like, you know, like a grandstand court instead of a stadium court or that it looked more empty than it was. Um, so, yeah, so my, my, my sense was different then. And then when I got there and I started, you know, kind of walking around the grounds and also, you know, watching stadium court and a few of the other courts a little bit more closely, it was totally different. And I think that the move was a total success. It really was. I mean, I... I was never, I mean, I will say I was never a really big fan of Key Biscayne in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, just that venue was was tight. It was cramped. It was tough on the players as well. Um, they were constantly fighting over uh, practice courts, and it just made them really cranky with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the space just, there was no space to really lounge. Um, they had to cramp, you know, over time to expand they, the t- space for the players. Like, they kind of cramped the media and just all this sort of stuff. And um it just never felt, especially coming off of Indian Wells, uh, if you did them both back to back, like when you got to Crandon Park, you were just like, yeah, no, I have no, I mean, you would literally walk up and be like, I have no idea how this used to be considered the fifth slam. Yeah. Like everything about it, except for the center court, which was great. The center stadium court was, court really was awesome. Nice. Yeah. I know. I love, I love the stadium court in, in Crandon Park. No doubt about it. Um, I also really love, there was a grilled cheese cart, like a <laughs> truck. Amazing. Big fan. Um. Yeah, so 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 that was kind of my experience, and this was in always better. Like even the transport for a place that was miles wise further away than Key Biscayne, not having to go over that bridge made transport reliable mm-hmm. um, in the mornings. Um, and the vibe around the grounds was really cool. I, I really thought that they did like the outer courts and all of the fan engagement stuff, like all the restaurants and the bars and um, all that. It was cool. Like you kind of. I mean, Ben knows I hate leaving the media center. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't like doing it ever. Um, and in Miami, I would like, I literally would. I would just like leave and just walk around the grounds and just like, I don't know, sit in one of the chairs and just watch the big screen and and all that. So I do think that the fan experience, um, and if you were on site, you definitely got a different sense than everybody who's watching from home. Which is why I would only say that like for people who are watching from home, like maybe, just maybe listen to the people. You don't have to agree with them. But just take into consideration what the people who are on site are saying, uh, because it, it could be that disparate. It yeah. could be that different, you know. Yeah. Um, and there were simple and, things like camera angles showing sections of seats that were not being sold that made it look terrible. Right. right. Yeah. And when or I came back the from the tournament like, and watched the finals, it looked bad on TV. I fully yeah, those, got those that. Bark alou- those Barca loungers, which are a cool idea and stuff, but one of the, you know, those big, big uh, chairs that were courtside. Um, the problem with those were like the chairs were so big; they're kind of like first class uh, seating chairs. Mm-hmm. That even if a pl- if a person was sitting in it, and if especially if it was like a petite woman or a petite man or whatever, or a kid, it looked like nobody was in that che- that chair. Yeah. Like when you were far away, so all you saw was all this blue, which is the color of the seats, which makes you think that the stadium's like more empty than it actually is. But when you're standing there and you're looking, you're like, actually no, I mean, it's like eighty percent full down there. But it certainly doesn't look like it because yeah. you see just like large swaths of blue. So, you know, little things like that. And they can fix that. Those are all fixable things. But, I mean, the attendance numbers were nuts. And the other thing they can fix is, which I think is a really interesting and very different for any other tournament I've ever been to. The More than any other tournament I've ever been to, people were really on the outer courts over the stadium. 
at almost all times because the because the weather was great that during that tournament people wanted to be outside especially Miamians you know it's sort of beginning of spring down there they don't really have a winter per se but it's getting warmer it's getting nicer people are wanting to work on their tans or whatever and that's what the locals were always saying that people just want to come to the tournament to tan um and it made it so that the outer courts for matches that were you know even like really not marquee matches were filling up so fast uh, and so they definitely should, sh- and people in the stadium kind of felt a little bit indoors with the overhang. And so they can shift some, some, that's a good thing about having this site be essentially rebuilt every year. I would think it'd be pretty easy to rejigger some stuff and, and have, you know, courts five, six, seven, eight be twice as big next year in terms of the amount of seating available um, and have that work. And that also goes to what we're saying beginning of the show. Like there's tennis fans. know there are so many more relevant players and relevant matches now. And, you know, a battle between, yeah. you know, the number 23 seed and an unseeded player in the second round could be awesome. And in the old days, it was not a relevant match. And I think sort of it was an interesting way to think about how the sports physical architecture can and should change to reflect this new, more egalitarian tour escape. Like there's not one match that's going to get 10 times as many people as another match very often anymore on tour yeah so i mean I, I I'm interesting. Not, even just yeah no it was it was kind of similar to kind of i guess roland garros's old before they started building out other courts but just like some of those outer courts there's really like not that much seating oh they're too small way too small yeah way too small right so um but you know that adds to kind of a little bit of the energy and the buzz and 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 great atmosphere on those outer courts so it's a little bit of a, a, tr- a trade-off but all in all i mean i think it was a, it was way more of a success and I think people are willing to admit that it was. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why people don't want to admit that it was a success. But, you know, if they can get some of those tweaks, you know, kind of fixed. I mean, I will say this because this is a side of things that, like, obviously a lot of people don't get to see. But, like, I um, did an interview with Nigel Sears and I had to meet with him in the quote unquote player lounge. And most tournaments you go to, the player lounge, some sort of, like, built up fake we try we put a tree in the middle to make it seem like this is a homey place but it's kind of like a like a, just a fake living room mm-hmm. you know uh, with some some ikea looking white leather couches and uh, that's about it and uh, but i went and there's a lot to be said and i didn't really think about it before about having the facilities and infrastructure of a nat- of an nfl football team it's such a, in that stadium it's such a great foundation it like, doesn't fit correctly but it's like amazing designer outfit you get to start with it's unbelievable so i went yeah. i went to the player lounge where there's also player dining and whatever, it was enormous. I mean, players were like, I mean, it was not even full, but there were so many players in there. And it's normally like the club area where like um, fans, like fancy fans can like, there's like, you know, bars like in the middle of the player lounge, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with like built-in taps and stuff like that. And it was like super nice, super fancy and luxury. And I was like, man, the players must love this because this is different. And I think that that's something that where, you know, in that kind of arms race that Indian Wells won pretty presumptively in the chase to be the fifth major, mm-hmm. um, you know, once Larry got involved and, and built out everything, you know, this was one of those really significant leaps forward for, for Miami in terms of just even just for player facilities. This was like slam level player facilities. Right. And yeah nicer than what they have at Indian Wells for sure. It was a very, I mean, not like it was that a Indian very, Wells is terrible. Indian Wells yeah. is great, but it was yeah. a very unique thing starting, like having this really interesting starting point of, you know, just facilities where you're starting with an NFL stadium, like, and like a pretty recently renovated NFL stadium too, where like, it's not, 
where most tournaments you have to sort of build out everything. Like you go to these, you've been to newer tournaments recently, like Wuhan or something like that, where they have to go and build everything on and on and on and on. Here in Miami, it was like, hey, we have all these great spaces. Like, what can we convert them into? Kind of. And so they gave like all the top eight seeds and every past champion of the tournament got their own like private suite. Because they had all these suites all over the state and they weren't, weren't doing anything with it. So they're like, hey, why don't we give these to some players and have them have their own like sort of private area to chill, which I just think would be it's like almost like a dressing room or green room for each player, which I just thought, yeah, thought would like be so the cool World as a finals, player. Right? Like how cool would that yeah, be if you're World like, finals, yeah, if you're like Conchita Martinez and, you know, Pliskova is the top eight seed and gets you like your own sort of room and you can have kind of like an office during the week or a place to kind of you know put your stuff down and chill and relax with your group away from the the constant, you know mixing bowl of forced small talk that is every common space in tennis like how how <laughs> great would that be for like yeah imagine like imagine like even like a more introverted person like Naomi Osaka or something having her own like place where she can close a door and have a, a part of the stadium to herself that's got to be very cool yeah no I mean I there's a lot going on for that uh, for that event and and so yeah so I'm really happy for them happy for James Blake um thought he thought he did a good job of kind of just communications and and just being good you know kind of figurehead for that event um super supportive equally supportive of the men and the women Mm -hmm. which uh was noticeable um so i i I definitely tip my cap to to him in that in that way and he was on Um, i mean like he was very much like yeah i I, i've you know it's not always clear with some of these players who get named tournament directors himself included like how much they're really involved in the day-to-day year-round the way that like a tournament director in a classical sense like a sort of and Worcester type turn director is, you know, eating, breathing, sleeping, Connecticut open for instance, five days a year. But like when it came time for showtime, James was so ready and so on it and so engaging yeah. and so, you know, all over everything. And so people definitely respected that hustle. And, and I, I recognize that too, because it's not always the case yeah, with former players. And I, I definitely walked away from it kind of thinking a lot of like, you know, if this is like a business model that could work in the States or, or anywhere else of just being able to repurpose you know, for a one week, two weeks, you know, span, you know, because we've got NFL stadiums, we've got baseball stadiums, mm-hmm. we have the the capacity to do this. I mean, is this a, a, is Miami proving that this kind of model or can it prove over time that this kind of model, maybe it leads to kind of like more tournaments staying in the States or coming back to the States because it's a, it's a, it's a great model if you can pull it off. Yeah. And, and I, I give a lot of credit to IMG. I, I really was pessimistic. <laughs> Um, I really was not because of anything other than the fact that it, it just was it, it it just was never my favorite tournament and I, I never really it never clicked with me and then it was like oh football stadium oh it's in, and everybody's like oh it's in the parking lot it's, oh it's closer to Fort Lauderdale than Miami everybody was saying all this stuff uh, and then I got that I was like this is great I mean honestly yeah. like it, no complaints it's interesting to think about the sport used to be. Um have a far bigger footprint in America. And part of that was also, it used to be more indoor. And there used to be a lot of like NHL, NBA stadiums that we get used, um, which have kind Battle of all- Texas, yeah, Astrodome. Astrodome. And even like more recently, like San Jose, ATP was in yep. the Sharks arena. Um, the Spectrum in Philadelphia hosted a tour event for a long time. Madison Square Garden was an NBA, NHL arena that used to have tennis for a long time. I mean, there were these existing facilities yet. So I don't think anyone's thinking that the trend is going to yeah, be towards enough. US getting a bigger footprint again. But like- infrastructure is there that's what i always say about like the u.s and like world cup like we could host the world cup on like 20 minutes notice we'd be fine we're so ready we have like so many big huge stadiums um that are kind of for a lot of 
are, are pretty untapped when you come to a lot of sort of creative multi-purpose thinking about them outside of their especially like nfl seasons which are so short and really only eight weekends a year they get used or 10 i guess with preseason but yeah one one very short one i think this will be short uh, one player we haven't discussed just in terms of trending whatever and i know you have deep uh uh interest in this person uh Dari kasakina mm. what would you say is up there's someone else i scrubbed as a name to, to talk about what would you say is up with her after this very uh flat you know pretty uninspiring statistically or whatever start to her year after being one of the breakout players of 2018 really is it just a normal sort of hangover sort of sophomore slump kind of thing or something else to play with what's going on with, with dasha you think yeah, it's hard to say, honestly. Um, you know, I mean, she seemingly put in put in good work during the off season. That was what you know Philip de Haas had said back in January in Brisbane, um, and that they were they were ready to go. And you know, I mean, at the end of the day, again, another young player who I'm far more willing to you know give a long leash to um, than than otherwise. But but at the end of the day, I mean, she, as far as I can understand, didn't want to split with Philip de Haas. I mm. think it was kind of one of those logistical things that just kind of had to happen because she wanted to kind of have some time for herself to kind of figure out what was going on in her head and um, and to kind of get all of that, that the mental stuff sorted. And that was going to require him to sit on the sidelines just and wait for her to come back, you know? And that wasn't fair to him. And so she was like, okay, that's fine. Like, go, you know, go get another job. You have a family to feed. You know, I can't just like have you sit around for no reason. So, um, so yeah, so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, and, and we'll see, you know, I mean, it's not like for as much as Dasha had like a tremendous breakout last year, it's not like she was a week in week out consistent performer. She had her kind of spurts where, you know, she had, a, you know, two or three weeks of like consistent results. And then she would have a time that was a bit of a slump and, you know, she obviously has a lot of points to defend coming up. I mean, she, you know, she has, you know, what, uh, quarterfinals back-to-back at Roland Garros and Wimbledon to, to defend. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, so we'll see, you know, we'll see once she's back on clay, that could be the solve. She loves it so much, you know, but that's the thing is that everything can change in a week on the tour. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there are other probably, yeah, I, I just think that for her, it's it's hard, right? Because it's not like she has a game that was really built on being consistent anyway. Like, there are so many moving parts to her game that exactly. if something goes off, then then it just it, she looks average at best. She looks like she, can't, she doesn't know what she's doing out there. You know, it's it's like I said, she's a jazz musician. It's great when it's on, and it sounds like absolute headache when it's off. Yeah, and, and that's where it's at with her. That's totally right, and that's what I was thinking. Sort of, I mean, it's just not like she has a plug and play kind of game where it's just like, you know, go out there you know, go for your shots, be aggressive, whatever. Like she really has to feel things and has to hit a very sort of specific sweet spot or specific middle ground or specific whatever in her game. Yeah, I watched a, a fair amount of her match, uh, second round match in Miami against Coco Golf, And even though she was like winning pretty comfortably, the whole way she just like, there was like, there was just like, you could tell she was muddled and wasn't really sure what she was doing out there. And just, we'll need to sort of find uh find a better sort of foothold or a, a way to reboot. And maybe Clay will give her a little bit more clarity or at least, you know, a little bit of a reset for her to, to enjoy here. Cause um, when it works, it's so, it's so great and spectacular. And that's why we enjoy her so much when it's on and why she and, won over so many people getting to play on bigger stages last year. It was so cool seeing a wider tennis public uh, in- introduced to her and embrace her like, 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 like happened. 
It's very possible that on the WTA tour, there's always like that running joke about like the French brain on the ATP tour, <laughs> um, how only one person can have it at a time. But like on the WTA tour, it seems like only there can only be one queen of variety that's like peaking at any given yeah. moment. So like it was Aga for all those years and then Aga kind of like basically got injured and was out of it. And then like Dasha kind of had her glow up last year. And now we got Shea Sue. Oh so, you know, it's not like you don't get that itch scratched. I mean, like, no, we are blessed. It's we there. are blessed. Yeah. We are blessed. So, you know, and on top of that, you get Ash and you get uh, Bianca. And yeah. So, you know, in combination, they are maybe one Daria Kasatkina. But uh, yeah, she, I, th- I think she'll figure it. I'm I'm not panicking with her. I'm just being patient. It's just like, yeah, she's not playing well. But, you know, that can that can change. She wasn't playing all that well going into what was it? Dubai last year mm. and then she like made the final out of nowhere so she's a notoriously so starter but this is just slower than than normal for her yeah uh, also I've realized in my notes having not mentioned the name of the guy who won Indian Wells I think this entire episode <laughs> so Dominic <laughs> team good job way to go buddy good job you yeah good for Dominic team winning a master's event on on hardcore people were like really shocked by that but i was like i'm not surprised also this is like the world's slowest hardcore possible so it's yeah it's not that weird um but yeah he'll be one to watch for sure for for clay uh and i guess that's about all my boxes checked so with that thank you courtney for being back with me and for everybody for listening to this episode of no challenges remaining if you want to follow along or you're not listening you can do so by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast we don't use Facebook that much anymore, but we are on Twitter more at NCR underscore tennis and email us no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Subscribe and review on your favorite podcatcher. Those help us quite a bit as well. Gordon, you have any rant rave thoughts, anything building up in your first quarter of your year? Well, uh, I'm sure lots well, why, has happened. Why don't you go first, Ben? Oh, um, this is again, playing catch up, but uh, the Oscar Wind was stupid for Green Book. Just throw that right out there. And what was the... <laughs> we didn't say that yet this year, so let's get that... The record reflect. Courtney and Ben, not into that. Yeah, that's that's an official NCR position. There you go. Um, we here, yeah, you know... Yeah, we're going to make up some sort of joke, like, we're surprised at how interested you are in this, you know, backroom decision. <laughs> but no, it was just terrible. Um, uh, I enjoyed watching W1A with you. That's, so good. That's a... Uh, absurdly british show that's available on netflix w number one a all one word and always whenever i look at it it always looks like wta i have to like double take at it it does a little bit it does a little bit um and i'm not gonna lie i maybe like recorded a lot of those clips and sent them to coworkers (laughs) just because there is just something about because it it, for those who don't know w1a is like this mockumentary show uh, about the bbc yeah. Um, and so it's obviously kind of the politics of, of kind of working in a big company and especially if you're in content <laughs> and all these sorts of things. And so there are definitely certain moments that hit hit a little closer to home than uh, than I would like. And so those are the ones that I record and send them around <laughs> and be like, hey, remember that conference call? Here, watch this. <laughs> no, that, so. sounds, that all sounds very plausible. Um, one other recommendation I'll make. It's sort of similar, but like real just in terms of that sort of uh, a real documentary, um, it's, I think it's a lot of interesting things to say about like crisis management and damage control and PR and sort of the people who are like spending a lot of time fretting over what I write, I feel like. Interesting to the other side of it was this documentary about Mattel 
and Barbie. Uh, it's on Hulu ah. called Tiny Shoulders, um, which was very cool. Sort of seeing like they were doing a rollout of a new product of a more uh, curvy Barbie and seeing like and sort of bracing for the impact of what the media reaction, social media and everything would be towards it. And it was a very cool sort of in the bunker look at this uh, very specific, very like embattled brand Barbie um, in this interesting way. So that was a sort of unexpectedly interesting thing, even if you're not into Barbie or you can go into it not liking Barbie and it's equally valid place to watch it from. They give all sorts of sides of Barbie and her polarizing presence in American culture, which is less than it used to be, I feel like, but still holds a lot of uh, uh, meaning to some people. So tiny shoulders on Hulu. Solid. I know that you, you, you talk about that one a bit. Yeah. I messaged you when I was watching that. I just remember thinking like yeah. it was interesting seeing, cause again, like I, as a journalist and so many journalists do, do go into PR eventually or whatever, I've not done much like that, but like, it was interesting seeing them like anticipating all sorts of possible backlashes and like, what do we do if this is the backlash? And what do we do if people say this? And what do we do if like this comes out nowhere? And do we respond if certain people have this complaint or do we not respond? And just being in like the war room, especially for like the Barbie war room. It's a very specific war room to be in. I just thought it was a, a cool look inside that. Nice one. Very, very nice one. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess I have just a few things that I'll, that I'll just give a shout out after the first, the first quarter uh, rants and raves. Um, it, first rave that I have, I think it's a rave. I mean, I like it. Okay. I, I'm li- I like the technology behind it more than I maybe like it, but it's pretty cool. Anyway, it's this board game called Chronicles of Crime. Um, and it's basically you play you you can play it solo, which is what I do, but it's also kind of a group game. You can get, you know, multiple people involved. Um, and you're solving crimes, right? So there's like a, a case book or a set of cases that it comes with that's of like maybe like five or six different cases. Um, and it the first series takes place in London, so there's actual like location cards that say, you know, uh Chelsea and Fulham mm-hmm. or Westminster or whatever. Now, what makes the game special is that you use you have to use your phone, uh, or um, and it's it's kind of QR code based. Okay. So basically, you kind of go from like you go from a location, like let's say, so the case starts, and it's like go talk to the sergeant. So you you scan the sergeant. The sergeant tells you what's the what. Hey, we got a call about this at Westminster. There's been something stolen from the museum. Go. So then you like take your thing and you zoop, you you QR code like the museum, and then it's like oh you know the security guard stops you and you know it tells you you know like whatever and so you're zooming through and then you can actually scan. The coolest thing is that you can um, when you scan for clues or look for clues at a location, like so you get 50 seconds and you literally hold your phone up in front of your eyes and it's VR. Mm. So like you can like look up and look around and look down and look behind yourself and stuff. And you have to kind of remember what you saw uh, of things that you thought were clues. And then you have to like scan those clues and it tells you like what's what. Yeah, it's really the technology I thought was really, really cool. I think that there's some little aspects of it that are a little bit amateur, but um, it's gotten really good reviews in the board gaming community. But um, yeah, I just kind of like started playing it since I got home or before I left for Miami and then now the last couple of days. And I was like, you know, this is really, this is fun. And it's like something that you could, you can't literally replay them. Cause like once you get the case done, like it's done, but because it's on your phone and it's via an app, you can like download 
right? Like new cases mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. Anyways, it's it's pretty good. I, I would cool. recommend it if that sounds like something that, that you'd want to do. If you want something, the only thing is I probably the, I know this is the dorkiest tweet that I've sent out from my Twitter account probably ever because literally no one responded. <laughs> like no one responded. No one liked it. No one retweeted. I always like, love it was when just you, like, whenever I can pull one of those off, I'm always like secretly pretty excited. It's like, wow. It's I, like. Because like someone will always accidentally like something to get complete right. silence is an achievement. It's truly threading a very specific needle of just like, wow, I've just mentioned something on social media that no one gives a shit about. <laughs> like, unbelievable. So I asked, I was like, is, yo, is anybody playing Chronicles of Crime? And no one responded. And literally the question that I had was like, I just wanted to know if like the cases got harder because like mm-hmm. the, the ones that I played were already too easy. So if you want something, if that sounds like something that you would be interested in, like that kind of crime solving sort of thing, but you want something a little bit more kind of like crunchy. Uh, and meaty uh, as opposed to this kind of a light fun game um i would recommend like the whole sherlock holmes consulting detective um i think uh, set it's like three or four um different uh games i guess um and it's just like basically like a case file like it's so heavy um and you open it up and there's like newspaper clippings and there's a map and there's all this sort of stuff and you just either with a family or with a friend or with your partner or by yourself you can just sit there and just like spend the evening, pour yourself a glass of wine, and just put yourself in Sherlock Holmes' shoes and try cool. and solve a crime. Yeah, that sounds like a good Paris activity. I know, except that it's so freaking heavy. That's, yeah, like, that's I, It's a game that I always want to take with me on the road because it's like perfect like hotel, like sprawl stuff out. Like you yeah. basically be Carrie Matheson. Like oh. <laughs> sprawl stuff out on your bed. Like, <laughs> on the walls. <laughs> put stuff up on the walls, jam out, you know, put on some acid jazz and drink some Cabernet and solve some, solve some crimes. Go off um, your meds. It'd be a whole thing. It'd be great. <laughs> it'd be, it would be something else. Um, yeah. So so there's that. And then the other thing, and I, I'm pretty sure I didn't rave about this when I got it because I got it right before Australia and I wouldn't have been able to try it enough. But now I've traveled with it for three months and it's been it's been really good. And it has been it's actually like like made my traveling a little bit easier is this um, travel backpack and this thing's not cheap, so I'm just going to like throw that out there on the front end anyway. But um, this travel backpack by Peak, um, P-E-A-K, it's a uh, it's a uh, San Francisco design company, mm-hmm. uh, Peak Design. Um, and it was a Kickstarter last year. And so I just happened to get it. And because I've always been, as you know, Ben, I love a good backpack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, but it's a 45 liter travel backpack. It's incredibly well made. Um, like the, the, the quality is so like top notch. It kind of like stunned me. It even impressed my dad and nothing impresses my father. Um, <laughs> like nothing, not his kids. Anyways, um, his grandkids, he's impressed, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just been a really, really like helpful packing tool to have 45 liters. You can obviously strap it on your backpack. The reason why I don't like rolling carry-ons is because more often than not, they immediately signal you and tell you that they need to check it. Um, and they always pick on the people who have rolling carry-ons before anybody who has a backpack, even if the backpack might be bigger. Uh-huh. Um, and so I always avoid having a roll-on. So I always have a, a backpack and a duffel bag uh, as my carry-on stuff that are so way oversized, but whatever. I board early, so it's never a problem. But anyways, um, this backpack has been great. Um, yeah, just Google it. If, if it's something, if you travel a lot, if you do week trips, if you do weekend trips, it's a perfect weekend trip bag. It would have everything that you need would be in there. Um, but I've just been so impressed by the design quality. Um, that's all. Cool. 
I've, I've had. I like stuff that's like life hacky. It's made my life better. Yeah, hacking life is good. I, I've I've wondered with in terms of hacks, I feel like the airlines have got to get better at doing something to incentivize gate checking, because like right now there's like, I do gate check occasionally because if I have another check bag, like I don't mind, and I ha- and I really like having um, the seat in front of me be uh, the nothing under the seat in front of me, so I can stretch out my short little legs more. Um, uh, <laughs> And yeah, just not worry about that. But I, I was thinking when I was taking my flight home from Miami, like there must be something they can do to like get more people to volunteer. Because people do not want a gate check at all, and there seems to be like constantly, like at least threatening, like wow, this is really not going to work, folks. Like you're not going to do it, and maybe they're overselling understand. that. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I I never really understand the not wanting to gate check your bag so long as the thing like I can't gate check my bag, and you'll hear if you ever hear me and. And Jimmy, the WA tour photographer, talk all the time. We were both very, very paranoid about this because we actually travel with a lot of equipment. Yeah. That cannot be gate checked. Like it, it literally like Jimmy cannot have his camera stuff like be thrown across a tarmac. Yeah. Um, so that's why we're always very paranoid about making sure that we can get on and we can get our stuff on. And that's why we don't have roller bags, everything. Um, and we try to figure out the system. What I never really understood is like once you get up there and no one's asking you to pay 80 bucks to check your bag or 60 bucks, whatever it is to do at the front counter. Right. Once you get there and it's just closed, dude, like just I check see the, it. I see the discount. Like I like get to check my bag gate check for free. Exactly. And then I don't have to wheel it around the, the airport or whatever, like for the next, you know, 20 minutes when I land or something like that. Like it's just a nice sort of like one. If I already have a check bag and I'm already going to baggage claim like it's no problem for me at all but even for that like because i totally agree with you if you've already have a check bag and you're gonna have to wait like you should check your bag uh your gate check your bag but even like for the people who like i mean i have family members who are like this who like never check their bag even Mm -hmm. if it's free they won't check it they'll always carry it on and i'm like i just this this goes with my whole philosophy about people who like speed a lot and like cut people off and try to like (laughs) whatever it's like are you so important that 20 minutes is gonna kill you like okay you have to go to baggage check now or you have to stand there in the 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 jetway and wait for them to to bring the gate check bags or whatever is it that bad are you really sure i mean is it there's somebody somebody, you're talking about a 20 minute delay somebody on twitter's pinned tweet is like people who just write the letter u instead of y-o-u what do you do with all the time that you save i mean like (laughs) you know it's i don't know Anyways, anyways, that's all. With that, enough feelings from us. We'll see you guys uh, sometime in the future. Episodes are getting spaced out, but I'm sure we'll be together. We'll do something from Rome. Nothing. Uh, and with that, we wish you a lot of good times in the future. Bye, folks. Ciao.